What's good, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Outside the Clutch. Uh, we've been rolling. I really appreciate all the support you guys have been given. Uh, it's freaking amazing. Want to give it a little bit. I'm super excited about this guest, man. Like, this is one of the guys that I met my very first year. I met him at a Pomona show, and we we don't talk as often as I'd like to, but he he has a different view of things in the industry, and He's not really afraid to speak his mind. So I'm super excited about what's going to come out. We're going to be talking about species that we don't always talk about on this show. As you guys know, this is usually kind of like a ball python show just because that's that's our main focus here. But we're branching out a little bit. We're going to be trying a couple of different species and he works one of them. So I'm super excited to talk about that species tonight. Um, as always, we couldn't do this without our uh, sponsors here at outside the clutch we're honored to be sponsored by vivtech are you ready for innovation tired of the same boring product that's been used for 30 years ready to give your reptiles and amphibians the uvb they really deserve then look no farther than vivtech their three watt led bulb provide the uv rays your animals have been missing with three bulbs to fit your pet's climate needs for optimal husbandry, plus a dimmable feature, and it's the only bulb with a two-year warranty in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Go to VivTechProducts.com today, use code FCLUTCH0322 for 10% off to provide your animals the best care they've ever had. All right, so I'm not going to make him wait much more. Uh, I want to say thank you to everyone that's here. The early people, Mindy, Tom, love y'all. Uh, really hope Otto's doing well. Eric's more factory. What's up? We see you, British Columbia balls. I like talking about stuff besides balls too. Balls are kind of gross, man. Uh, That's good. <laughs> without further ado, here's my dude, my man, Mr. William Philippek. How you doing, brother? Oh, pretty good. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm super excited that you are here, man. Like, I, I feel like we take a lot of time away from talking to each other, but every time we come back together, it's almost like we didn't miss a beat. So oh, yeah. I really appreciate you being a guest, man. Oh, man. I have to apologize, too, because all the times we've ever met or met, you've always caught me at the worst times because, what was it, the last time we met in Arlington, I was, I, you couldn't, I don't know if you could tell, but I was, you like, were done for the day. I was pretty, yeah. well, I was pretty pissed because me, Dave and Chad were all supposed to go out to eat, but we went to the, through the lobby. Dave saw all you guys at the lobby fucking beelined all to all of you guys start. I was cool with the talking, but he wouldn't stop. I said, dude, it's like, it's 10 o'clock. I don't know what all is going to be open. We had to go to Whataburger or something because we were smoking nice. sushi. And I was like, oh, I guess we're getting burgers. So I was like, same thing with MJ, too. MJ saw me there, too. It was the first time he ever met me. And I kind of, I might have, I won't say salty, but I just wasn't as talkative. Right. You know, like he was doing shots of Patron. I told him, I go, man, I would have drank in that whole bottle if I had something in my system. But I know better. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to wait till I eat because... I want to try to wake up tomorrow <laughs> you know, or the next day, but yeah. So I just and, had the preference by saying, I'm usually more talkative at reptile shows. I think all the times you caught me were just really shitty times that I no, did so, not get to eat. 
Our first go, bro, was um, at Pomona. I remember Pomona. Pomona yeah. of 19. And yeah. it was right before I did that interview with uh, Megan. Megan, yeah. And I was hanging out, waiting for her to get free. And we started talking about ball pythons, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I was looking at your Morelia and stuff. And because uh, you were, I think it was you, Dave, and Megan all at one booth at that show. Yep, yep. But... We we hung out for a while there, and then we did the Megan thing, and then you and me, I forget what we were talking about. Do, but do we, we ever were, hang out after the show? We never I, get the chance, dude. Like, every time we go after a show and I see you, your hunger got, cravings are in. <laughs> it got it got crazy at Pomona. I, Pomona, I miss Pomona. I, or, I don't know. It's something about California, like. I don't know that that show had such a different vibe than all the other reptile shows. Cause I've been to Daytona, Arlington, Tinley and Pomona and something about California is this different. I don't know if it's, it's the people. It's not a, Oh, it, and it's the people too. I don't know. They're just more inviting, I guess. And more, I don't know. There's something about it. Just, just the people there I feel are better, you know, well, I don't know. I can understand that. I, I love it. Like that's where I started. And I think that's what got me hooked on the shows, man. Like just the way that the super shows are ran. Rami does an amazing freaking job. Everyone's friendly out there. Like, and it feels like it's a party. Like, I, I don't think there's been a time where I came home where my wife didn't have to drive at least a little bit of oh, the yeah, way right. because I was just, I was not in a position to drive 12 hours. Yeah, I've never got it. I went to a show where I had such little sleep. I mean, I don't even know why we went back to the hotel that we were staying at. We should have just stayed at the hotel near Pomona where we were hanging out at because, I mean, we didn't. We slept for an hour, had to wake up, drive right back to it. I go, why did we even come back? <laughs> so let's jump into it a little bit, bro. What What got you into this industry? Oh man. So I've always been an animal guy. I've always had a fascination with all animals. It, you know, probably more so with big cats. I was really into the big cat, uh, all those species, like the leopard in particular. I was always in, into like the, you know, leopards and stuff like that. And, uh, I just, you almost became know. a tiger King apprentice or what? Nah, I, I, I don't know. It's weird. I never had a desire to really keep that stuff but i just i'm at the point now where i'd like to go see that stuff like actually go to africa india or you know somewhere to go actually see these animals in the wild but never to really own it i i don't know just just too much work it looks like and real you know a lot of risk if you're not careful too but uh anyways then it was probably 97 98 i remember watching Steve Irwin catching a parenti monitor out in the desert, like chasing this thing down. And that hooked me on that, like really drove my animal interest, probably the hardest out of any, any, like any zoo I've been to or anything like, like nature or whatever. He, that one incident really drove me into like, I remember that, that one, you know, from the childhood that really stuck with me. And then something else the kind of funny literally 10 years later or 10 years after that so 07 it might have been even 08 i'm not sure but bar check came out with a snake bite stuff 
the shows or just started doing them. And then that's when I was like, man, the reptile industry looks really interesting. Like, I don't know, like Steve, he, I don't know. I was interested in reptiles, but Brian, I would say really propelled me into like, like, I guess showed me the industry, I guess, right. you know, and I was in, I was enthralled with it. And then shortly after that, I start going to local shows here in St. Louis, Missouri. And anyone, especially back then, probably our biggest breeder at the time was uh, Ben Rennick. And, um, you know, I talked to Ben, you know, he, we would talk every so often. We didn't really talk all that often, but we would talk a little bit here and there. And um, I think it was maybe a few years after I met Ben, I, I I don't know what it was. I was just like, you know, if you could ever or ever use help or anything out in your building, you know, I'd be willing to come out there, not even for money. I would just get paid in snakes, you know, just honestly at the time he offered paying me in snakes. I didn't even know that was a thing. I told him I would just come out there and clean shit regardless. Like it didn't matter to me if you gave me anything, just the knowledge I would learn from doing that, the right. experience I would get was worth more than probably anything I could have gotten from them, you know? So I think that's one of the cool things too, though, man, was like, that's, that's the way a lot of us got our start all together. Not necessarily yeah. with like a Rennick or something, but you, you work for a store or you find someone that has reptiles and you start working for them or like learning under them. Right. And that's usually how you get paid for your time as an animal. Oh, yeah. and that's what really gives you your start, which is, I think it's pretty cool, man. Like, like it uh, gives you the opportunity to get something you probably wouldn't have been able to get before. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Like, well, and it kind of, I don't know, a breeder definitely, but when you start working for him, like I was very jaded, I guess. And I think most people are when you kind of just, when you look at the end, like with like snake bites, they're not going to show you all the behind the scenes, like what really happens. Right. But you kind of you look at it and you're like, oh, that's so awesome. And then you get to know a breeder. I'm not saying I mean, a breeder could be a shit bag, too. But like with Ben or something, I kind of I got to see how everybody else was like I I can tell you what I my views have changed on a lot of breeders because of working with Ben. You know, not some in good ways, some maybe not so good ways, but generally it was just like, it's just aspects of stuff you didn't think about or never thought of till you start working with a big breeder. Then you kind of see at least big breeders as far as like, you're more, I guess in this case, an apprentice kind of where you're actually right. more involved than like an employee who just clocks in and out and doesn't really care about what's going on with the actual industry where it's more itself. yeah it's, it's more driven yeah. to help you succeed and to like teach yeah. you yeah hell yeah but i that i learned a, well that and have been having the reputation he had you you got to see a like a lot of what goes on in the industry and i got a lot of experience too because honestly like in business ethics and stuff you know because ben was you know at the time i think this is going to blow people's mind, but at the time, I mean, Ben was above Justin at one point, you know, I mean, I'm not, maybe not a huge gap between the two. I mean, they were either neck and neck or even Ben might've been a little bit above, but I mean, 
at one point Ben was right there. They're even close in the same age, came up around the same time, you know, went two different routes though. That was always interesting is kind of see how, you know, and me and Dave still talk about that today is like how Ben would have done in this day of age. Cause his, his mindset in the industry was totally different than Justin's. Ben always wanted to be, I remember years ago, they used to talk about this tier system in the reptile industry. There was tier three, two, and one. And if I'm not mistaken, tier three was more like us, you know, the smaller breeders, you still have a day job. Uh, tier two is someone like, uh, like Bob Vu or just, I think Justin would still fit in there. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he would. Cause then tier one was like gourmet rodents and, uh, like your whole sales and like the big, I mean, yeah. factory like size companies. I mean, huge. So, and I remember Ben was more interested in being that big production, like the tier one guy. And yeah, I just, I'm curious if he would have still kept that mindset as the industry, as, as the industry evolved into what it is right now. So I, I just find it's, that's always something I like to think about, you know, because oh, yeah. right now, like Dave, I think Dave kind of wants to go into that, you know, real, the tier one type breeder, which blows my mind. I don't know why people want to go that route. That is a lot of work, a lot of work and a headache. What do yeah. you think was the biggest takeaway from that time with him, man? Like oh, boy. that, like the way that you've taken your collection or like, how you take care of it or anything like that. Like what was the biggest takeaway from working under Ben? Oh man. All right. So this, so the way I structured my collection was, you know, you kind of, I don't know, like I wanted to be like Ben. I'm not going to, not that size, but I wanted to be very similar to Ben. So I started amassing all these like different genes or something. It didn't really matter what I was just like, you know, blackhead, you know, clowns, uh, just a bunch of random stuff. Because, you know, something Ben was always known for was like the uh, six to eight gene right. combos. I mean, just the huge, you know, you can't tell what it is almost kind of combos. So, and I was into that too. And I was like, oh, that's super cool. And I kind of, I originally I was going that route and then at some point I kind of was like, I don't know. I've, I don't want to say I really enjoy ball pythons, but there was just something like I couldn't just like Ben, Ben could just keep ball pythons and be satisfied. Like I just couldn't bring myself mentally to just keep ball pythons for, I mean, there was tons of reasons craving and like, Mm -hmm. like at the time I would say it was a craving now it's a lot more like a purpose behind what I'm doing now. At least in my mind, I look at it as much more of a purpose and even a service that I'm trying to do for the community. But yeah, as far as Ben goes though, I, uh, I got a lot of my big snake experience through him. Like before I, I don't think I hardly ever met. I might've messed with a berm one time like a, just an eight or nine foot Burmese Python. And that was probably the only experience I've ever had with a big snake. Well, when I first start working with Ben, I was 
primarily cleaning babies and baby tubs. And then at some point, his original big snake uh, cleaner or keeper guy uh, just left. He just he just he had other things in life going on. He just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. Well, Ben, the big snakes take up a lot of time. Like, probably, I don't know what did Ben probably have. He had maybe 30, 35 big snakes altogether, like adult big snakes. Like everything was an adult that he had down there for the most part. And I mean, that would take, and I'm not even talking cleaning all of them, but that would take almost six, seven hours just to do all of them. You know, just 35 snakes. Granted, most of, granted, most of them are terrible. They were <laughs> horrendous. Like, I mean, n- there was only maybe two retics. I maybe two retakes I kind of trusted. I actually trusted the anaconda. I trusted the wild caught anacondas probably more than any of the captive bred retakes. Or the say, most of the stuff down there was like what it was imports or F1, F2s, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, retic wise, I think only the only wild caught animal he had at the time was a, the original ghost uh, retic, was the only wild caught one he had retic wise. Then he had his anacondas. He had the two anaries uh, and the one T positive. And he had two other normal, uh, just normal wild caught ones, but they were, uh, they ended up passing shortly after that because they were, I mean, they were old, old. And then he had a few yellows that ended up passing too. But they, like I said, these are old, old snake, wild imported snakes. So those are kind of out, but I still. I dealt with a few wild caught ones as far as the big constrictors go, but I mean, yeah, those F ones, man, like those anacondas, the double hats that Megan has mm-hmm. are terrible, <laughs> terrible. I've never, and what makes them worse is they're unpredictable. Like at least the retic kind of lets you know that, Hey, I'm not dealing with your shit today. Oh, anaconda will stay like a deflated tire until you fuck with it wrong and then it springs on or springs out at you like uh he had these cages but he had these male he kept this two double head males in i mean these cages they only were like a foot high and these re- or the anacondas were like six and a half feet long and i mean they were probably 15 20 pounds roughly and they, I had it aim, and they were probably right around my chest level or face level. And you'd have to s- sling them up there because it was game on. As soon as that door slid open, they were ready to go. <laughs> they were coming out <laughs> after you. No, hey, one, no joke. One of them that I was telling you before, that was the closest. Like I almost got castrated by one of those male anacondas. Like I was tell, I tell you what, it's one of the scariest things I've ever experienced with a constrictor is when i had this big or this male i had them tailed because you couldn't support the middle of their body because you touch the middle of their body they're turning around to get you so i'd have its tail and it's i don't know some of its head was on the ground but it was still able to sling around and it slung around and when it slung around it like grazed my cargo shorts like i mean it's mouth wide open just grazed i could feel it brush and it was like one of those immediately chills down your back. You go, wow, that could have been bad. That could have been a lot worse than what it that could have. I would have hated to have had Ben yeah. come down to help me with that too. That would have been a hell of an experience. But yeah, no, I 
anyways, with the big snakes though, I that's that's probably the biggest thing. Like as far as experience level goes, that as far as what I've learned. And like I said, business and stuff too. Like Ben was I've learned more about other species from other mentors of mine, but Ben showed me a lot more of the business aspect of it. And that's what, I don't know. It's just, it's a very interesting, I don't know, like just the way I have, I have my species mentors and then I had like my, I guess the, I guess you'd say the business mentors more so. And I always, they're very interesting. Like, and then, Cause I'm trying to do something more in the middle, you know, kind of, cause I think there's a way that you can keep a bunch of different species and still do it for a living if you wanted to, but you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta think more out of the box, I guess, if you will. And right. that's a problem. That's a big problem. I see in the reptile community. If someone else big hasn't done it, then they don't see a reason to do it. Well, I think that's, that's what a lot of people fight with, man, is like everyone, and I'm going to say it flat out, like everyone wants to copy. Yeah, and it, you hear it, you hear it from all the guys that have been around for years and years, man. I just saw that the freaking it Italian drives, came out, it bro. Drives me, it drives me nuts. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Dude, I'm telling you, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to an individual that I think is not there's gonna piss off a bunch of justin fans but i think this dude surpasses justin garrett hartle and what he was able to do with superdor free ticks is more impressive i this is gonna drive people nuts to hear me say this is more impressive than what justin's done and the only reason i say that is because justin's already built upon something that was already there like it's a bunch of the new people won't understand if they haven't been in it long enough, but you see the big ball python breeders. Like there was, there's Justin now. 10 years ago, Brian Barchick was king of the hill. You know, he was up there. He was, I know one year he made so much money just off five snakes. Hmm. Like five snakes made crazy money. Cause I worked with Ben and Ben got one of those big, expensive snake so i got to see and hear this so what uh, was that do you remember what it was sunset the sunset sunset project and uh before and then at bull and then bar check well bar check was always big but he didn't truly blow up till that youtube sensation start going or this youtube youtube thing start blowing up but before that you had uh ralph davis ralph davis was the big guy on campus at that time and then back in the 90s it was pete pete was the big guy shoot i don't know if anyone watched dave Plumbo's videos he did of Mm -hmm. of uh pete back then but i mean he was he was the justin back in the 90s you know you're talking about pete call right yeah pete call but yeah uh anyways back to the garrett thing but I mean, and it's not to say what Justin hasn't done is impressive. It is impressive. And it takes someone with some real, you know, skills to be able to take the helm of a, you know, of a, I don't know if you'd call it a species like that. Like just, especially a ball python being such a big part of the industry. But see what Garrett's done. I think, see, this is going to grind people's gears to hear me say this. So 
I think he's done it in a better way than any ball. Justin, uh, Barcheck, any of the other ball python people have done. And the reason why I'll say that is because he's trying to please the high-end market, the people who want to be breeders, and the people who want to be pet keepers. And, I mean, they... I mean, there's people who will spend $2,000 on a retic as a pet. I don't know too many ball python people that will do that for a pet. Right. And there's there's something missing there because the ball python industry, you know, it's the pyramid scheme. You got the top dog, you know, the other few tiers, and then you got the pet keepers. Well, the people right above the pet keepers, which are the breeders that produce stuff for pets, they don't they don't care about like here here's your snake i mean keep it in a 40 gallon tank with an astro turf and a log and a, a ceramic dish and that that's boring and then people just and then the only thing you can make it interesting is if you breed if you breed it's the only way it's interesting but i go ball pythons are pretty cool species i mean i keep 26 different python species and I can tell you, there is not a single python that acts like a ball python. Rather you think that's good or not is your opinion, but I can tell you what, I've never seen any other python suck into a ball so fast like an armadillo, like a ball python. I've walked by a tub and heard this loud, like this banging noise. I'm like, what the fuck was that? I pop open the tub and this ball python's in a perfect ball. And I go, that thing sucked into a ball that fast? Like, I mean, it was... I mean, was just because it realized you were walking. Yeah, by. it was startled. It was st I startled it just by walking by. I scared it. it. Usually, the only snakes I've ever had do this were babies or juveniles. Adults don't really, they don't really suck into that ball, or at least not that quick. They usually, I'm sure a wild caught one might, but you know these big fat cats or bred ones we have, they can't suck into that ball that fast. But yeah, I don't know. See, I want to take that back. You said 26 species of pythons, right? Yeah. Holy Maybe shit. more, twenty-seven, something like that, and that's that's just a little bit. There is, How, bro? There is so many other species, and there's a bunch of species I still like to get. Wait, well, do you you do it all by yourself, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. How I do? All, how do you? I'm sorry, that's over my head right now. Like, how how do you stay focused in on that many species? Oh, it's pretty easy. You know, that's the, that's another thing. See, you're going to get me on these rants, man. I'm telling you, you get that's, me going. I'll go. So I, I don't, I don't understand that. Like, this, how do you, this how is do the you problem. work the husbandry for 27 fucking species, dude? It's super simple, man. People would be surprised how many species are really flexible and they don't need all that crazy. Like the Python as a, as the, the, the group is just, they're not, they're not there's only a very few species in the pythonidae clay that is actually need specific care like the diamond python and the bolens pythons to live and procreate and even diamond pythons i mean they may not live long but you can breed them like most pythons and sometimes they do all right but um yeah most pythons shoot you know another mentor well he wasn't much he's someone i really look up to is ryan young Look at the way he's doing it. He's breeding. He shoot. He's bred bred this year. Probably, I think he said he hit. He finally hit his goal of beating, not well, surpassing Dave and Tracy Barker, who had the original goal of the most species of python ever bred. He uh, he surpassed that this year. I think he's at thirty-two different species, 
And it's like I said, it's not that hard. You just got to just I think some people just put too much thought into it and try to make things harder than they actually are. Because you think we overcorrect it then? Like, yeah, we well, we there's always something. there's like the stigma, I guess, like. I don't know. I, I've always been curious about why more ball python people are so terrified to diversify. I think there's a few reasons. One is they get told by other people who are more, more experienced because ball python people don't read books. If you don't tell them, they don't care. So they, you know, if a breeder goes, yeah, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's, <laughs> okay. I don't want to do that. But if you actually, if you, if you dial back, it's care. It's really, they're really not, I mean, look back at their care. They're not really all that difficult to do, you know, take care of and even breed. You know, well, I, that's cocky to say to breed. I mean, just most of the time, most of the time. You could you could still fuck it up, but it's generally it's not too – it's really not that hard to – you know, some of the species are just as easy, if not easier, than ball pythons. You know, like, shoot, Antaresia? Antaresia breed like colubrids. I Well – I, however hard you might think that it outside of the cooling, you don't have to do that crazy cooling, but I mean, they breed crazy easy. I mean, you just put them together and I mean, they'll breed. I mean, there's, there's nothing to, uh, and stuff, but yeah, a lot of people just like making it. So, well, you know, and another thing too, is I've, what is it? It was, I was always, I was always wondering if ball Python people are just, afraid to get i don't know it's either get picked on by other people because you keep other species have you noticed that the ball python community is vastly different than and i mean i follow every species i keep i follow all the groups i may not be an intricate part of all those groups but i listen i see how all of them act and it's funny literally all of them act pretty similar to each other the only species that differentiate or break that rule kind of is retics to an extent. And now I'm noticing blood pythons. Bro, I'm, I'm going to gonna really... say it right now. Like the, the retic community is fucking toxic as shit. Yeah, dude. They I attack each other constantly, man. Dude, I could say some stories about retic people. I got, it's just like... yeah, I got out of that as fast as I got in it. Like I still keep them. Oh, yeah. Um, I would never... actually. I'm letting the retics go and it oh, breaks man. my heart, but I just, oh, I don't have the room or the capacity with three kids to take oh, care yeah. of them the way I yeah. need to, man. But um, I, that shoot, I plan on getting some, uh, speaking of Ryan Young, he produced some, uh, ghost, uh, ghost yeah. retics, which, you know, obviously working with Ben, I have like an affinity towards, and I was, I saw that he produced them. And the problem with the retic community is, they it's getting a little bit better now but before the whole superdorf thing kicked off everyone was so morph driven in it that they were just like morph this morph that locality why would you do a normal and they just forgot all the locality stuff and said oh fuck it we don't care about that and they just threw that aside and now that you can't get any more imports now they're just like, well, shit, I wish we had those locality retics now. And right. well, now you can't. And now, so. So that's not code... even my issue, man. My issue in it was oh, you, when the there. fucking, when the super dwarf mentality came in. Right. And I love Gary. I love what he's done. 
But when that came in and you saw everyone else start saying, oh, this is uh, 25% this and 10% this. So it's super dwarf. When technically, unless you have a 40, I think it's 40%. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. 40% is not even classified as super dwarf in the first place. But then you get people that will like, they'll mark it as a super dwarf. They won't say what the percentages are. And then if you try to ask them, okay, well, what's the locality? Well, I don't remember, but I know the mom came from this person and the sire came from this person. And why don't you ask them? I was like, you're the one that fucking bred them. How do you not know what these are? Why are you not keeping your records, but you want to claim it as something Uh, that just tells me that it's not that, but I don't know. There's, there's a lot of freaking drama within that. Well, I can't deal with it. I, that, you know how I fix that problem is like, I just don't do the hybrids. I just, and I'm, I'm going to tell people, I, Garrett talks about it, but I don't think it really sets into those retic people's minds yet. Dude, Saputriae, Jampianzus, and Reticulatus are all three different species. And I, I, it will happen. It will happen. They will get set. Well, I shouldn't say will. I think there's a strong possibility they're going to get split off from you know each other because do you know do you know there's four different species of curtis the short-tailed pythons well there's four there's there's curtis mm-hmm. which is the the blacks or the sumatran short tails then you got bronger's my and brittensteini well bronger's my is bloods brittensteini is borneos and then you have the the mong python which is i can't even i can't remember its scientific name but they're four different species do you know how much those species diverged from each other they are only 1.5 percent divergent from each other yet they got split off to separate species and they yeah. have they have quite a few differences from each other like scalation and uh, color color really doesn't mean a whole lot or patterns and stuff that can vary in just localities but scalation and all that and they're well, divergent from each other. So they, without a doubt, the retics are going to get split up. Like there's no question they're going to get split up from each other. Yet I still hear retic people calling all of them localities. I go, dude, that's a species. Like it's it's going to be no different than Borneos and the short tails. You know, it's the same. God, so you're well, going to get me same all way you, It's the same way we look at it within ball pythons too, though. Like if you want to look at that as a species, it's going back to simple genetics and this has been a fight for what like the last four or five years that i know of where everyone's calling fucking dominant and incomplete dominant and co-dominant oh yeah and they get on that rant and you can't figure out what the hell it is when it's laid out in simple genetics but everyone wants to call it what it is to make a sale that's you know and that's the god you're gonna get me there's all sorts of rants we can get on we could just make this one (laughs) whole rant say so like with the like with ball pythons that is we're gonna like, call this what grinds my gears by will dude, Philippe. Ball, ball pythons are like a whole nother like it's i've never seen such intelligent businessmen in ball in any part of the reptile industry outside of garrett in any other industry well nick i think nick's pretty nick mutton's pretty good he's he's he'll sell you a fucking he'll, he could sell you on a rock he can he's pretty good anyways but besides those guys uh ball python people i mean they they don't care about learning hardly anything like i mean as long as they know that you know business 101 
They don't care about nothing. And I think the problem with that is, and I've seen this, at, it doesn't happen often, but like, like I've seen people, like, I don't know if you know who Ben Morrill is. He's a ball python guy who is an actual geneticist. He's actually one of the guys doing the, trying to work on that genetic testing for the genes, like the skins and all that. Well, he's a, he's a really good guy. I've seen him walk around Tinley. Nobody knows who he is. Well, not no one, but a lot of the newer people don't know who he is. Right. And they'll just start spouting this bullshit genetics. Like, yeah, like spider doesn't have a, a super form or, you know, this is a co-dominant this or, you know, the, just the spotting all this stuff that you're just like, all right, come on now. Everything go, has a super to, form. You know, it's yeah, I don't I do not believe for once that there is a, a true dominant gene. The only one I've yet to see a super in, but it's just because I don't think anyone cares to see, is um, calico and sugar. But I've heard rumors that there is. I just, no one tried. And really, right. frankly, I don't even care to do it. So I don't, like, I have a bunch of it, but I just, like, I probably, I'd never do it. But I don't know. It's just ball python people just, and that's fine, I guess. If you're only solely interested in the business and the pretty colors, that's fine. But I think the problem, it just, I don't know. Maybe it's just in my head. That's why I like looking into a lot of this, like the genetic side of everything. Cause I feel like if I'm going to do it, even though I only have a high school degree, I need to try to really make myself learn this stuff to the best of my ability. I, you know, you're not going to be a professor or I'm not going to be a professor, but at least try to learn it well enough that you can, either speak well on it or not mislead new people. So new people right. keep spreading the same false or, you know, nonsense that's been spread for the last 20 years in ball well, Python. That, that's simple things, man. Like, I think that's, yeah. that's a good point to make right now is I used to say it all the time and I got, I got so much fucking kickback on it. It wasn't funny. It was just like, Hey, pick up a book or do your research. And they're like, it's a ball python. What do I need to research? Dude, ball pythons have such an interesting, <laughs> like, natural history of ball pythons. You know, like, I, I'm I'm curious about the history of ball pythons because it hasn't really been really worked on that much as far as their natural history. How did they, how did the African clade of pythons become what they've become? Because ball pythons are genetically very distinct from Nedalensis, Sebi, and the uh, Angolans and stuff. You know, they're those that three clade of pythons are all very similar to each other and diverge from the same, you know, speed or same individual. Right. Ball pythons seem to be more genetically related to stuff like the, like the short tails and the and the berms and stuff. So I don't like. And if you read the Dave and Tracy Barker book, that like I have back here, there's like a. Um, there's like a huge natural history thing that I find super fascinating. And I guarantee this, uh, I, we're dog and ball pythons people, but I guarantee you, but even the big breeders, I'm sure just went right to that morph page, like skipped half that chapter of all that said, Nope, don't care. And just write to, and I'm just like, why? That's so interesting to me. Like to me, there, it's more than just the aesthetics of the animal that appealed to me. Like I, I can just look at a snake, look at its head, and I love how the scales are placed on their heads. And that goes for all pythons. And I don't know why I find that so fascinating, but I just think that's so cool. 
So I don't like, and then it's just the, the interest that everyone else had. And that's why I think so many people get burnt out in this industry. When you're just so into one aspect of it and miss all this other stuff and ball python, well, just ball pythons. I think just, that's what makes the greats the greats, whether yeah. it's ball pythons or whatever species it is, you can't just, you can't just focus on the sales side and like trying to make something cool. Like you need to actually have that passion for the animals. And we say that and everyone's like, Oh, well, I really love my animals. I love my animals. I love my animals. Well, what do you fucking know about your animals? Like, yeah. do you, up until, up until a few years ago, I think most people just thought, well, besides like Volta or something crazy that had a lot of talk, right? People were like, oh, well, ball pythons come from Ghana. It was like, they come from a lot more places than Ghana. Oh, yeah. There's, it's a whole strip across Africa that they come from. Oh, dude. And, I... Like, that's why I'm so excited about Dave. Like, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to nitpick on what's going to come. I haven't seen it, obviously. Like, he hasn't released it to anyone. But, like, I'm super intrigued about what's going to be put in Kaufman's Ball Python movie. And what's actually oh. going to get put out. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's going to be... See, I... I think that, it's going to change people's perspectives, man. I, I, I hope see, it does. I could, I could see it. But I, I see it, like... Uh, I see a huge, like... That like that that documentary sounds like it's gonna be a huge have a lot of controversy, but not controversy, but there's like two sides of that that uh to the spectrums for that that movie. I'm seeing the rat keepers and the bioactive keepers or naturalistic keepers. I kind of lump those two in the same category, but they they're all they're going head to head. I would read, you know, I'm that dude. I'll go through the comments just for just to watch the shit show. And I'll I'll look at it. And I'll be like, wow, there's these people are just going at it. Like, you know, one guy wanting to know more about ball pythons climbing trees and another guy saying like, yeah, fuck those naturalistic keepers. You know, like I'm watching all this stuff unfold on these comments section. And I don't. I don't know. That kind of leads me into something else. Like, I just don't get, I I don't get the divide between the two because I think we should definitely be working more as a, you know, especially if you're going to be a guy who sells ball pythons as pet keepers or to the pet keepers. Like, why would you want to argue with that? You should be striving to do some stuff like that. So your customers have long-term interest rather than just looking at right. a, shitty tank with a pretty snake in it you want the overall you the you know the whole thing being pretty rather than just one aspect of it you know well and it's and like I, so if you do that that's gonna make them and i don't think people realize this but that's gonna make them come back like if i tell you hey throw a couple plants some dirt and a heat element maybe change their water a couple times a week that would be nice like yeah. don't be a douchebag your ball python will survive 20, 30 years. Oh, or dude, you, you can make something that you enjoy, like may, reenact its environment. And maybe it's just because I, I've been, I've had Ryan and Erica in my head too long now. Yeah. At this point, like, that's, well, I want to make everything as naturalistic as I can, but I understand what the breeding aspect, I really can't do that at this point. Like what my ambitions are with this, I can't do that. Now the See, ones that aren't going to be bred, I fully plan yeah. on doing. 
So I'm kind of like in the, like, all right, I don't, I don't buy into the whole, the snakes need the bioactive naturalistic enclosures. And the reason why I say this is because if you look at so many species of not just pythons, but snakes in general, that can live in human environments, shit, they can live in your house and you not know it. And they can live just fine in your house that is far from naturalistic. So I don't buy the snakes and I don't think they give a shit what they're in. But I think the naturalistic keeping is solely needs to be for you to engage you and your eyes. Because if you got like some eyesore in your house, why the hell do you want that? Like, why would you want that just sitting in your house? But if you had something like the zoo, like a zoo style enclosure, then that's going to draw like shit. You might watch that more than television. Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is like it's not necessarily like the health of the animals should be yeah the number one priority right but if i put something that's in an enclosure that's aesthetically pleasing to me the care of that animal is going to happen way more often than okay i walked in this room there's a hundred tubs in here i need to clean a hundred tubs and when i open the tub hey it looks great like i love the way the animal looks and hey i have some uh reptichip or whatever sort of substrate you choose to use i'm not gonna push the substrate on people right or paper towels or whatever like it is what it is i use multiple different types right but um you look at that and you're like okay i gotta clean it okay i gotta give it water okay i like the snake and when it's out i enjoy handling it and it it was a great experience now two three days later when i have to do it again i'll give you some more attention whereas you're walking by and you're like okay i'm gonna watch this Oh, cool. It's using that. I put that in there to see if it use it. And now it's using it or it's getting more aspects of like, I, I won't even say naturalistic, but you're seeing it engage with its enclosure more versus yeah. just staying in one spot because it has something to explore. Yeah. Well, you're there's put like more care to that animal, I think. There, there and it kind of, no, I will say that's kind of when it's like a the very, not always, but is kind of species uh certain species do better in certain scenarios like with white lips white lips they're very well anything like as far as white lips and the rings they're so high strong that if you put them in too open of a tank that they don't have enough places to hide and there's too much traffic you know they're going to be more inclined to hit that glass and stuff and that's why i think the some of the I know people breed them in enclosures, but I think tub, like if you can get a big enough tub, tubs generally, they just hold humidity better and they're just, it's more secure because I tell you what, if I put them in a cage, it would bang their face against, you know, cause I don't do the, I don't really keep a lot of this stuff in natural. Well, not naturalistic at all, really just very basic hides, give them stuff to hide in. You know, and that's pretty much it. Maybe branches, uh, depending on the I'm species. I'm not sitting on that, man. Oh, like, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm saying, like, there's a place for either one. I understand the breeder side of it where yeah. you, you need to do the best way you can make their climate in that area, right? Yeah. And what's going to be best for them and help them live that full life cycle and breed and do all that. I understand that. I'm not shitting on that at all. I, I fully... I understand that point to say it in the least, but I also understand the other point, you know, like, I think, it, I, I think I guess it's, it's just cause I've had both sides argued yeah. so much. To me. Uh, I think it's just having, 
I think it's just having a happy medium. Because, like, I, I have nothing against what you're saying, but it was just – it's more so, like, portraying to the audience, you know, trying to inform them that, you know, because, yeah, I think more ball python people need to work on that naturalistic stuff. Shoot, I think, honestly, if you're going to be a ball python breeder and you only plan on breeding a few of them, maybe think about keeping them in more of a naturalistic enclosure. So whenever you do sell those pet animals, you can inform them how to do it rather than just saying, here you go, and just be like, well, I can't help you because I don't do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's I, that's probably the – at least with the ball pythons, I've noticed that's a big – that's a big – I think it's a fairly big problem and why so many people might lose interest. And if they don't find a new species with someone who knows how to keep more of a naturalistic enclosure or knows how to do that, well, then they just lose interest and say, I don't want to keep snakes anymore. And then they end up getting out. And that's just a shame, you know, because, you know, that leads me into another topic as far as this naturalistic keeping goes and why I think it's very vital for the future of reptile keeping. So uh, I think the zoo or not the zoos, I think the private sector has something that we can do for conservation better than any other segment of branch of like conservation, like zoos, biologists. I mean, because I listened to a podcast I think it was a year ago or something. And I can't remember what it was called, but it was um, these wildlife biologists who are very anti-captive or captivity. And I mean, I'm talking zoos, like AZA that, zoos. That's the way they, the AZA is. They refuse do, to work with your well, local I'm talking, breeders well, I'm, well, or anything they, domestic. They will to a certain degree, but you have to be certified aza right but that i'm talking like these the guys the biologists i'm talking about they don't believe in even like aza zoos should be keeping these animals like they don't think animals should be in captivity at all like i'm talking straight PETA member type people well i think and this is me kind of this i'm gonna it's gonna sound like i'm a rag on zoos now but the problem with zoos are and I truly believe these guys when they say that, because I work with a bunch of non-animal people. And you know what most people do when they go to zoos? Get entertainment, distract their kids. They're not going to learn anything. They, I mean, they might know, you know, a tiger's from Asia or India or, you know, a lion's from Africa. You know, they're going to maybe learn that. And, you know, that's probably pretty much it. And then when they leave, they're going to forget about it. I am a very strong believer and this old saying, out of sight, out of mind. Right. And when you don't see something constantly or it's not a part of your life, you forget it. That's why so many species have died off because we as a, we do not care about stuff. And I'm not just talking about animals. We generally don't care about stuff till it's too late or almost too late. It's either almost too late or too late for us to save it. Right. And I think, I think as private keepers, if we can keep the, I'm not saying give people elephants and tigers now, but as far as like, Damn it. Community, I was totally going to go for an elephant. Yeah. Right. right. I, I would do the leopards and lions and tigers if I could. But anyways, like if we could just get these species in people's houses and put them, put them in naturalistic environments, you are going to have people be a lot more wanting to be involved in something rather than, 
oh, I, I don't see it. I don't care. You know, because I, I think the ultimate example of this is look at cats and dogs, particularly dogs. Cats aren't so – they're a little different since they don't really look a whole lot different than their wild counterparts. But when you look at dogs – It's because they, they haven't been domesticated. Well, as much as people want to, yeah, they're a lot shorter domestication. Their 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 domestication is a bit different. You're talking about an animal that's a solitary animal, like like people talk about. Like if we and we all know it, you could have a domesticated cat. Oh, you throw it outside for a week or two. It's not domesticated anymore. It might still give you that domesticated attention that you think is. A normal cat, but it's completely changed. It wants to hunt. It wants to do everything because its instincts kick back in. Oh yeah, same thing with pigs. Pigs dog, are the same way. Yeah, yeah. a dog's well, not going to revert some, back to that. Some some dogs will. That's why you still get re- like I like Illinois. I went when I went to college for a little while. Ina, Illinois. I've never seen so many stray dogs just all over the place. It was it was ridiculous how many stray dogs I I've seen out there. But anyways, back to what I was saying earlier, you know, this whole, you know, God, you're going to lead me down this, the rabbit hole of rants too. Like you're being, <laughs> it's there. Well, it, it, so I, cause I did a survey at some reptile shows. Cause I was generally curious if this, like, if people really think like this, you know, I, I had a survey where I had like uh, top five favorite animals, domesticated included. And dude, I'm no joke. Probably 80% of those, 90% of those had dogs. They had dogs. But you know what I never saw on that list? A wolf or a coyote. Nobody cared. Why? Because that animal doesn't really look like your dog. And it's it it's it's kind of just it's a sad. And this leads me down another path. This is why I'm pretty against hybrids because it falls into the same category why if you're if you start hybridizing these animals and they don't look like their original wild counterparts and morse can be guilty of this too the crazier the more fit and i'm guilty of it i do it too but the more genes you get into an animal that doesn't look like the wild type animal you start losing that appreciation for that animal and when you start losing that appreciation for that animal then you start not to care about you know it's it's different. You could watch it. You could see a, someone shoot a coyote or a wolf, and most people it may not affect. Animal people it will, but the general public probably not going to give a shit. I've seen this. I saw a video yesterday of a crocodile grabbing a feral dog. That dog, it was no one's dog, so it was it was about as wild as a canine can get or a domesticated canine. And it grabs it, takes it, and eats it. So it was a part of the ecosystem at that point. It just part of the food chain. Ate it. You know how many comments I saw in there saying, oh, they, why that poor dog? Why would they, you know, someone should kill that crocodile? And I'm just like, you know. It's nature. It's nature. And it's just like, that's what I mean. If that was a coyote or wolf that got taken. They would have. No one. The people would have been like. celebrated the crocodile. They 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 might have been like there might have been like I said it's not a total blanket thing like some people would have cared but the vast majority of people would have just been like oh well so that's what I mean when I tell people if we can get these animals into more people's houses 
and keep more naturalistic enclosures to keep that keep people more intrigued and more involved in it i think that could do so much more for conservation than any zoo or any biologist could do and that's and you know this is you know there's this is how my mind works now like very differently than a lot of people in the reptile industry i'm looking to where how can we help the industry as far as these animals in the wild we're not like because you talk to a lot of old timers who are purists i hear the same thing they tell you oh it's because maybe we can keep these animals going that maybe one day they could be released back in the wild that's nonsense that's probably we're beyond never gonna, that i think yeah, yeah that's we're, we're that's never that. that's never gonna happen well i won't say never select few people who are allowed to do that and those are the people who work with the aza zoos and stuff but if you want to help some without having to like you know fill out a bunch of paperwork to try to become an aza member or you know work with the aza or whatnot i think that's truly the best way you can do it you know just like what garrett's done with the super doors now i will give him slack he does a lot of the morse and like i said morse don't help and it's it is what it is but at least he still shows appreciation towards the wild type animal which i think where the ball python kind of lost that you know you kind of lo- they lost it there you know they dropped the ball you know and that's what i think that's what the morelia community's done a really good job on is yeah. there there's a lot of purists and if you're if <laughs> if you're not- baldy enough to mix localities or things like it's that you, too- you're going to hear it it's not too bad this is this is the thing with this is the thing with the morelia community and I think they're starting to realize it now, but this is going to be a this is like because you know recently the fish and wildlife really busted down because Australia wanted to stop having uh, captive animals being exchanged all over the world outside of Australia. So they went to the fish and wildlife in the U.S. and I guess they cracked down on the regulations as far as export and import. Like right. even just to other countries, obviously not Australia, and now we're kind of lim- we're even more strict uh, restricted on the gene pool we have now. So this is this is a hard one to say, but dude, some of these Australian animals will not, unless something changes, will not be here in say the next two to four decades. You know, so depending on the species and how many, you know, there's going to be some that are going to withstand it, and it's a shame. Same thing with retics. There's going to be retics where well, a lot, look at the Indian pythons, you know, like Sri Lankans and the in, Indians, they're all, they're going to die out. And it's such a shame that back, I remember listening to like Vin Russo and, you know, Eugene and all of them talk about back in the day, you know, the seventies and eighties were in Tom Crutchfield was another one where you'd hear him talk about the Indian pythons. We could, you know, they were breeding them just as often as Burmese pythons for the most part and they, unfortunately people start hybridizing the two and then now that they has you know because of the laws and now they're endangered you can't get them imported anymore right and now that's a species that's going to die out like that might that one might legitimately die out in the next 15 well, years maybe yeah, we're gonna i mean in our lifetime because the bloodlines are dried it's like, it's good they're gonna die out and i tell people you know, and it's hard for Australian people and even maybe some retic people right now to hear that 
and say, oh, well, well, maybe if we cross these lines and well, then we'll have to hybridize them, right? You can, but then you kind of fall into that situation I was telling you earlier. Well, then you kind of start losing that appreciation for the animal if it doesn't quite look like it did in the wild. You start lo- You may not think you are, but I think in extinctually you start lose. You start losing touch with nature when that animal starts looking more and more and more different. The more different it looks, the more you're gonna slowly and surely forget about that wild type and where it all. Most people, anyways. But I think that falls on. Man, that falls on the zoos too, though, because like their their mission is to conserve and like reproduce these animals for conservation, right? But they give like you're not even if you see it and you appreciate it for that moment or you go through one education show, you're not going to remember it. Like you said, yeah. and most of these zoos, like they're, they're purely volunteer basis. Cause you have to have, I think it's, I don't remember if it's 500 or 5,000 hours before you could be like work within an AZA. So how many volunteers that are working towards that lose their passion and just give up on being a volunteer. They put in a year or two, they don't reach their hours and they don't care what's happening around them. They just, they do it as a typical nine to five at that point and don't care. And then you're not getting these education shows. You get like one education show a day on a tour and they show, they show like five or six animals, which are their money makers within that facility And your people are only spending an hour and a half within this entire zoo that has upwards of 200 species sometimes. Like I know our local zoo has, I think, 15 or 16 different reptile species. And you might see one within the education show. One out of 20 species. Like that's that's insane. So they're not going to care about anything else. And even then it's a reptile and there's these fuzzy animals over here. So why should I care about it? unless you're already a reptile enthusiast. Like, I, I think it's just, it's poor the way that zoos do it at this point. And I don't yeah. know that it'll ever get changed. I, and you know, I think it could. And this is what I mean by, and I don't think this will ever happen because we have such a problem with getting people to donate money to the U.S. Ark, let alone to tell them to donate money to a wild, like some sort of, like I, I try to donate a, a, what I consider a decent sum of money to different uh, biologists like Daniel Natouche. You know, I, I messaged him earlier in the year and I said, man, I've been captive breeding some animals for like a decade now. And I've been like really getting an earning the one to like support people who see, get these animals, like study these animals in the wild. And I asked him, Hey, is there anything I could donate to that it particularly helps pythons? You know, just because that's my clay to animals I enjoy. And I was just like, you know, I because I want to feel like I'm donating towards stuff that I have, you know, to help the animals in the wild. You know, feel like I'm actually contributing something, you know, outside of just in captivity and what I think should be at least try to be the wave of the future. You know, as far as trying to help some of these species, because, you know. So, like I said, some of these species will not be around for very long. And if we don't, if we don't try to do something as far as like show the government and show even like the only people who can get Australian animals is the AZA. Now, if we can see, make a like, 
the problem is that the re- I don't know if you ever read that book, uh, uh, the Invisible Ark, Defensive mm-hmm. Captivity by Dave and Tracy Barker. Well, Dave worked at the, the Dallas Zoo for a long time, and he would talk about his experience, and he would talk about how back I man, I'm gonna butcher the year, but I think in the 60s and 80s, I could be wrong. There was a huge, there was much more of a collect these rare animals and then breed the rare animals. And then I think around the 90s, like I said, I hope I'm not butchering the years. I think it was the 90s. Then PETA got involved and PETA started cracking out. Well, the zoos didn't know how to defend themselves. So the zoo said, okay, okay, we'll do whatever you say. We'll back off. And they'll kind of, they'll, you know, they did the opposite of we did what we did. We, you know, you hold the middle finger to him is what we did. <laughs> you know, we told him like, no, you, you know, but, and so they had a huge shift. So then, and I don't, if you're going to display animals to the public, I think they did the right thing, but us being private keepers, I don't think we need to really take that route. Right. At least like I said, with reptiles and stuff and, stuff like that. I'm not talking like the elephants and all that nonsense, but you know, us private keepers, you know, zoos do, do you educate the public, show people these animals that are probably, you know, and they do great things as far as, you know, most people will never see these animals in the wild. Rather they go extinct or they just can't afford to do it, but maybe leave the private sector to help you with the breeding and procreation of these animals. You know, and like I said, and the zoos may not want to hear it because I, I I think some of them get a little irked when they hear those people that go to zoos that are animal keepers and they say, I have this, I have that, you know, and I think it kind of they loses that luster of the, the wow factor that the zoos sometimes, well, most zoos try to do. So, well, I think that that falls into like, so we have our everyday breeders and i i agree man but i think that's finding your passion project outside of it like your passion project should be something that you not necessarily care more about but like it's something you know isn't commonplace like i don't know what it is about dracos for myself and i've said this a couple of podcasts now like there's just something about that little agamid that freaking glides from tree to tree i think it's really cool and i think it'd be awesome to have a room full of them the issue is it's all imported still and when it's imported it comes in and they're all dehydrated and you're lucky to keep them alive for a year let alone get them up to maturity to try to breed them and the few people in the states that i know of that have done it they usually get a pair and they get them to that breeding size and then one of them comes down with issues and they end up losing their breeding pair yeah that's that's kind of like the problem when it comes to wild caught animals if you're gonna do wild caught animals you should try to keep a a group of things and that's and that leads me to another topic import importers you know i think more importer you know the the problem with import animals is obviously it's a business to them and they need to make money but i think that shit should be left to the breeders you know or the experienced breeders don't don't you know if they could just keep that stuff and then you know we get it and we breed it and then sell it to the general public or sell it back to the well i would probably wouldn't sell it back to the importers because they're going to put the captive bread and wild caught stuff together 
but you know, sell it to or pet stores and stuff like that. Or and it's just like uh I don't know, uh losing a train of thought. But I think that that was uh our own fault. Like especially yeah. if you look at ball python. So like we're always looking for the next change, right? So <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're we're looking at pictures and we're like, well, I want that one, that one, and that one. And maybe I could prove it out genetically and make a change. But the hype from that is it's never going to take away from that business. You're always going to have that business. And the new people, you're not going to get it to just the experienced people because the new people are always going to want to be on that trend. They're always going to want to find that one thing that's going to make me stand out because I made this special morph or it didn't just pop up locally in my collection. Like I, I need to find a way to make a name for myself. So I'm going to import it, all this crazy shit and bring all kinds of disease and all kinds and of you, craziness into my fucking collection. Like, that, I don't know. I'm least, not shitting on the people that import animals and take care of it. Like some people do it right, but I'm just saying, I don't think you're going to be able to make it just experience people. Cause people, everyone wants to have that new morph pop up. I, okay. So, and that now, now this is going to lead me down another ball python oh, conversation <laughs> so so with the morse right and this is the problem you know people need to they really need to like look at the history of the ball pythons right look at like how the so back when in 2000 when some or well 90s we'll go nine mid to early 90s when some of these morse came were starting to roll in well you know what the the process was there was Breed it to as many normals as possible. Breed it to, you know, so you can get it out there. And then eventually people start breeding them together. And they go, oh, this is cool. So then you had two different competing things. You had the combo, Catherbred combo. Well, the other ones are Catherbred too, but the you had the combo animals and you had the rare single gene animals that were, you know, still top dollar. And they were competing and competing. And then the new more start drying up and they kind of, they've almost disappeared for them. I mean, as far as the big people asking these, this ask just huge numbers on these projects or, you know, certain morse or whatever. And then it became how many, this is kind of the era I came in is when let's add as many incomplete dominant genes into one snake as possible. You know, shit. I worked with one that was probably most, one of the more well-known guys who did it being Ben. And, you know, then that, then you could tell the industry start dipping down rather it was, and I think it was because people realized how hard some of those like six, eight gene incomplete dominant traits are to hit. And people kind of just, you saw the market dip. And then Justin came out with this recessive stuff, you know, the clown stuff. And then you start seeing another trend going and then it became recessives are the new hot thing and uh the multi-gene animal or the multi-incomplete dominant animals are kind of dying off and becoming very pet-like animals pretty quickly too and then you um then it start picking up and then people start going oh justin start knocking out double recessives and people going oh double recessives are there now triples and all this stuff and i'm just like guilty look at Look at the way the tr Guilty. and I am too. I dude, I couldn't tell you how many puzzle, double head puzzles uh, projects I have, but if you look at it, it's good. This is gonna 
especially because I'm work, I'm working. It's going to take it's eventually. Gonna, it's going to do it for t- few reasons. One is because people are going to realize that shit's a lot harder than it looks. And I'm not going to lie, guys. More genes in a snake doesn't make it better. It doesn't matter if it's recessive or incomplete dominant. Dude, I'm not joking. I've seen, I'm starting to see a bunch of clown or no clown, clown pieds and just regular pied combos that are starting to look very similar to other multi genes that are allegedly different genes that are starting to look very similar to each other. And you're like, wasn't this what we were trying to avoid doing years ago? Whenever people would bitch about, oh, we have eight gene snake and they all start looking alike. Well, now we have double recessive. When everything made a white snake and you couldn't tell what was in it because you put so many genes together. It was that or, and now it's like, all right, now we got a mostly white snake with some orange spots with no other pattern other than maybe a line of its head from the clown. And that's all you got. And now you're just like, well, that's pretty cool. But why would I spend 15,000 on that? If I can get, you know, some other gene that does the similar thing. And I think this is a bold prediction, but I think if you look at other species, it's kind of a trend that go that happens. So for, you know, selective breeding in every species is a huge thing, except ball python people. Ball python people have not accepted that. They think selective breeding is if I buy one animal that is the best quality of that gene, then that's all I got to do. And I go, that's just the one animal. If nothing else in your collection has those other polygenetic traits and those that make that snake look the way it looks, it's not going to, it's going to look, it's, it's not going to pass that crazy color on. You're going to get a wide range of looks, you know, and that's another thing with ball python people is they keep saying, Oh, this, this gene's so variable, this gene's so variable. You can have totally different ends of the spectrum. Well, of course, you're you're not not selectively breeding breeding. whenever, whenever you start selectively breeding for traits you like or things you like, you can t- turn your collection. To, and my biggest regret, and I wish I would have done it, is I could have had two different lines of puzzle a stripe puzzle and a standard puzzle. I was producing these weird stripe puzzles. And the parents, there was no hidden gene, no nothing, just randomly striped puzzles. And I could have made a stripe puzzle line. I didn't because I had so many males that I just couldn't. It was a dick fest for the last few years in my collection as far as producing stuff. I was like, I just can't do it. If I get a female, I'll definitely hold it back. But if I'm just going to get stuck with males, I'm going to sell it off. And who knows if I don't do it, I might just buy more stuff or buy that stuff back from those people. But like I said, selective breeding is a lot more tedious than ball python people tend to think. But I think if somebody – and this is where I think small breeders can be adjusting. Well, kind of adjusted. I don't think you're going to make a pastel so great that people drop their six gene recessives or whatever and get a crazy pastel. But you can show people that there's other ways you can make a business. You know, you can be the guy who breeds, selectively breeds black past or, well, pastel, but it could be black pastel too. You know, all these traits. Look at Tom. Oh, yeah. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. Like it's there is a um, there is a the only people I think that are doing it. And I don't follow them as often as I should, which sounds bad for me spouting all this selective breeding. But there's this 
there's these breeders in India that I've been noticing. I've, I saw them selectively breeding like lesser combo or lessers and you're trying to get the best looking lesser you can get and then working on putting combos to it, you know, and I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, you can do it with every, I got another one too. When you get these genes that are allelic and you, you, and you say, so like, and I've seen this happen too in Ben's collection. People look at Mojave and Lesser, two different genes. But if you start breeding a blue-eye leukistic animal, and that's how you say it, and you breed that animal to whatever, whatever normals, if you're going to breed it to normals, doesn't happen all the time. But every so often you get like this gene crossing where you start getting animals that look very weird, like animals that look like they could be a hybrid between a lesser and a Mojave. Like it almost to the point where it's hard to tell almost like a newbie wouldn't be able to tell them apart. Like that's how different they can look. And people don't think you could do the same thing with like this whole mahogany and stranger thing, uh, enhancer desert ghost thing. Shit. Even genes that aren't allelic, like you can make cryptics look like puzzles. I mean, they already kind of do, but you could blind breed them to look like that. You know, there's all types. I mean, and people think when I say selective breeding, they think, oh, just make it brighter. No, I mean, you can completely change the look of a gene depending on how hard you're willing to work in it. Like, there's a project I'm trying to work on. I really don't want to divulge it till I'm actually working on it more. Mostly because... If you say it, you know, ball python people aren't going to give a shit unless you have, which I understand. If you don't have proof of this, then why talk about it? But there's a gene that is probably considered, oh, I can tell you what the gene is because no one's going to assume what I'm going to do. Like desert ghost. I really don't like desert ghost. There's a reason for it. I call it the cop-out gene. I call it, it's lazy people that don't want to selectively breed. So we're just going to enhance it with a gene that just make quote unquote makes them pretty but the heterozygous animals look like dog shit and i've seen this before one of the biggest this is me talking some shit now one of the biggest dg breeders out there yeah i think one of the bigger ones makes beautiful dg combos but dude his heterozygous animals look like dog shit like his pastels are probably the brownest i mean they don't look they just look a shade darker than brown like i mean they're 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 terrible but there is a you can you can selectively breed dg in so many different ways so many and i'm i'm working with the gene just to prove to people you could do it like i am not going to even put dg into anything else outside of the selective breeding project that i had planned so i'm doing it all from scratch i got one animal that looked like it kind of had the characteristics i'm looking for and i got Four imported ball pythons, you know, and let me tell you, that's a terrible idea. People who get imported ball pythons don't do it because <laughs> I haven't had a mite problem till I brought them in and quarantined them and then found out everything had mites in the court, you know, and then I'm like, shit. So then I had a mite ordeal and I had to take care of that. And like, and that leads to a quarantine situation that needs to be talked about more in this hobby, but that's a whole different subject. But 
like I said, and I'm going to do this and it could take 10, 15, you know, my, I get a lot of this inspiration from the Morelia community. And probably one of my other, this guy's a mentor to me is uh, Nick Mutton. You know, he's a, he, he can be kind of, he can come off kind of arrogant when people talk to him. Cause he's, he's very, he knows a lot about every, a little bit about everything. And he can, it can kind of be off putting to some people, but when dude, he knows his shit. And when like you hear him talk and you see what he's doing and you just go, well, then why can't I, you can do this with a ball Python, right? but people don't want to do it because, Oh, if I can get a gene to do it and make it easier for me, then I'm just going to go that route. But I don't know. That's just my rant with the morph thing and the, and the ball pythons. Like they have nothing against morphs. I love morphs and I can talk the puzzle gene all day, but I can also talk 50 other species of python, even ones I don't keep. I shoot, I'm getting in the boas and I've, I've been getting like geeking out on the locality boa stuff here, like in Parador and Constrictor, and that stuff's just super neat. But and then the Corallus complex, I've been really geeking out on that and their whole evolution, like how they became what they've become. So that's I like I said, I find I can find so much interest, well, stuff that's interesting in the hobby that people just. If they just if they just broaden their scope, you could never get bored in this hobby. You know, you might overwhelm yourself. Yeah. You now, yeah, that's a problem. You might overwhelm yourself so bad that you just it's just too much, and you just burn yourself out that way, I guess, rather than just being bored. But I mean, there, there's so much you can do. I, I even like okay, even if you wanted to do this as a business. There's so much different, so many different ways you can do it rather than just following the same formula that you see all these other people doing. Like, I just don't get it. When you see the way Garrett did suit, dude, I wish some of these new people knew how much people did not give a shit about super doors. Dude, I, 10 years ago, I was at a local reptile show and a buddy of mine had a, a friend of his had a clutch of super doors that he was trying to sell at a show. Nobody won them. They were like a hundred, maybe 75, hundred bucks. The dude came up to me with a deli cup, said, dude, just take it. And you can pay me later. Rewind 10 years later. I finally was like, you know, I got the space. I'm going to try, I'm going to get some locality, you know, with some of the retic uh, species now and, or localities or species. It didn't matter to me, but I finally decided to branch out in some of that stuff. And I spent over $2,000 for an animal I could have gotten for damn near free before. And to see that transition is mind-blowing to me. And I don't see why people don't take that and do it with something else. Now, I'm not saying you can do white lips for a living or water pythons for a living. But no, you, could be a, you could be a ball python guy who is also known for white lips known for water pythons known for this whatever species it doesn't well, i think a lot those. of those things are they're just so niche because so many people were scared of them or they were told hey this is a hard species to keep and so they wanted to take the easy route and they're like well there's money here so why don't i just stay here but it's like it was like when i was looking at you and we set this up like 
the day that I saw, and I, I texted you the same day. I was like, dude, I just saw that you hatched. Like I'm a month behind, but I just saw, or not even hatched, but I just saw that your white lips laid. When they oh, hatch, I want a female. They're they're only a few days out. I mean, they could it literally almost any day now. They should they're dimpling pretty good, so they should be hatching soon. So, but it, that's that's what I'm saying though. Is like yeah. you you have that niche with white lips right now, and it's one of those. I know you well enough, and I'm comfortable with you well enough. So you're not going to be mentoring me through that process, even though you don't think that pythons are that diff- well. Hopefully, mentoring me. We'll see <laughs> if I don't bug you too much before. <laughs> but um, it, but it, it, that's what I'm saying. It's like now I know. Okay, so I have four to five years to get her mature i have the one that i'm bringing in that's two years ahead of her but i'll just it gives me that time to learn the animal and just take it and it's going to be a niche thing for me i'm not going to try to go and breed hundreds of white lips every year but it's something that i i'm i don't think i'll ever have the capacity to even attempt bullens i might eventually have the money to try to do a pair of bullens but i won't ever have i don't think the capacity with what i'm trying to do to do bowling because I'm focused on too many things that are opposite of it. Like I, I want to play with too many Australian species or I want to, I I'm getting out of retics right now, but I want to get back into retics. Like I already want it back. It's just, I know I don't have the capacity right now with my space. So once I have a bigger area to work, I'm definitely getting back into retics, whether it's mainlands or dwarf, super dwarf, what yeah. have you. but it's things like that. Like I, you have to have the passion projects, I think. Like you, you have to have something that keeps you motivated throughout all of it. And I'm not saying that ball pythons and stuff like that don't motivate people, but you you need to find that niche thing so that you don't fall into just one aspect. Yeah, because I remember coming up in the industry at the time where you know, the big breeders, there were people that were known, like all your big breeders at the time were always known for multiple species. Like Ben Riddick was known for ball pythons, retics, and anacondas. Bob Clark was known for retics and berms. Uh, Peter Call, ball pythons and boas. Barcheck, fucking everything. Uh, uh, what else? Um, I mean, dude, the list goes on and on. There, I mean, every, I mean, uh, Greg Graziani was known for ball pythons and alligators. Like, seriously, all these old, and then it stopped. And then it just became one species or just ball pythons in particular. I know a lot of other species keepers that are, they, most of them do other species. And I, ball pythons, I'm starting to notice they're dabbling in stuff, but ball python, well, it's not just ball python people. They're very like trendy people. Like, they like things that are, well, we were talking about it, like trends. Like, a water monitor, a retic, uh, what other terrible animal would be a great first pet? They just want these animals that are, like, of course you shouldn't breed that animal because not everyone should own those kind of animals. But there are a ton of other More smaller. Yeah, that is, my God. I can't people, tell you how many people, like, just here locally so there's a guy that comes to the show that just started here locally and he brings four to five baby morelets every single time and at least one of them goes and those people never come to my little table afterwards thank god but it's just like you don't realize what that's 
Maybe you do, but 90%, I, I, actually, I'm willing to bet probably 99.99% of the people that walk in there have no clue what that's going to grow into, have no idea how to actually care for it. They definitely don't have the space here locally to take care of one when it's fully grown. Like that, and, They don't you know, have the, the patience to train it, so you're going to get freaking lit up. And trade it with, at like a year to a year and a half to the zoo if the zoo will take it because you're not AZA. The problem with like the problem with stuff like those the crocodilians, retics, and monitors is you know you were in the military. I was in sports, like pretty like wrestling. You, I don't know if you know much about wrestlers, but they're crazy. I mean, absolute bad shit crazy. But if you've never been in a situation where your life could be in danger. Not could a lot be. Of people, it will be. Oh, well, At one point, some, it will be. Well, like, you know, I couldn't tell you how many people I would see. Like, I, I work in this sandpaper company, and a tank would catch on fire. And how many people would just stare at it and not think about getting a fire extinguisher? I go, this is what I'm talking about. You get people who, like, if they get Guilty bit by some – well, Guilty of that, shit. You're a military guy. I know. And, and you know how to handle a situation. Like when people lose their shit or people get in super high stressful situations, they don't, they, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to stay calm and handle a situation. Now I'm not saying I can handle all situations, but I, there's right. like with big constrictors, you know, for the most part, like I've been wrapped by a few big ones and you kind of, you you know as long as you're calm it's okay you know it's not ish yeah ish. but most people yeah like ish, i ish. so those that have watched the channel for a long time or like listened to this they probably know about it but the time i visited cusco is when he still had grumpy right from garrett oh and grumpy almost got me like i, I was one of three people i think that i saw in that household yeah, I was one of three people within that household that even handled Grumpy without protection, let alone handled her at all. And uh, I felt the wind when she went for me, but I turned oh, yeah. the right way and I freaking I let go of her body and I karate chopped at her neck, which was stupid in the first place, because if she had turned it off, yeah. my hand would have been <laughs> meat, like oh, unusable yeah. at this point. But that was my instincts, you know, like I was turning away and I was just like, no. And. Right after Garrett's like, dude, I'm so proud with how gentle you handled her. Cause most people wouldn't have. I was like, I wasn't fucking gentle at all. I karate chopped your snake, bro. Like I hit it right in the head, right in the neck, right behind the head. And I got away with it and I shouldn't have, but that, that goes to tell you that you don't know how you're going to react till you're in the situation for one. Yeah. So have a mentor, especially when you're dealing with large constrictors. Like Cusco's obviously watching everything that's happening and he's giving me advice throughout. Like you saw within that video for him, you saw probably 10 minutes of handling. Both the pulling out and putting back into her enclosure took me a solid 45 minutes to an hour. And I was a fat kid at that point and a truck driver and there, there was nothing left there. Like I was huffing and puffing at the end, and people don't think about that either. They're like, "Oh, oh yeah, look at this five-second video from this TikToker or YouTuber, and they had no issue." And I had a, it's, oh, bro, I had a golden child. 
I had a golden child at Ben's place one time that worked me so hard that I, I had to hover over the trash can to puke because I was like, this thing, getting it because I don't. So the way Ben and us would clean is we none of his retakes were very nice. None of them. There was only like I said a few snakes that would handle like being messed with, but his he had this golden child that just really didn't like getting messed with. Well, he would he would stick the snake and we would stick the snake in like a I don't even know what they're ninety quart tubs with the lid halfway on and you'd you know snake it in there. I don't Ben was it, these are Ben's animals so he probably even just knew them better than me. But even if they turned around, he'd bop them on the nose. I'm not gonna lie, I did not trust him at all. I've seen what they did behind his. Ba- he had a one of his was a Sunfire Heck Ghost on his shoulder. And that thing just did this behind, like open mouth right behind his head. He didn't see any of it. I saw the whole thing. I go, if that latched onto the back of your head, boy, that would have hurt. I go, never trusting him. And he had this other retake. I, it was a special retake. It looked like if you if you thought a snake could have Down syndrome, this snake looked like it had Down syndrome. Like it had a kink in its neck, real buggy eyes, kind of just looked stupid. I mean, it was it was an adorable little like retake. A yeah, kind of just yeah, just not too fucked up of a face, but it was pretty fucked up. Well, the snake would, the snake was always chill, never had a problem, and I guess it was going through a cycle, and it was hungry all the time. I remember sliding that kid. I was standing, say here, opening the door to my right, slid it open. That snake come flying out of there, and it's on the bottom bottom cage so it's by my knees and i was like i'm not gonna really need to watch this snake it's usually pretty chill it comes flying out like that and i go that's it do not trust any of them no more Mm. at all like i was just i was like that could have been a that could have been another nut incident there too because i was like right there right nut level that could have been game over so i was just like don't trust any like i'll mess with them but there's always that sense of i still don't trust you you know, I, I will mess with it's you. A caution. But yeah. I'll keep I keep my eye out on their heads and stuff. And if they you know, I mess with enough species you can kind of tell when they're getting I don't know, either way too curious for their own good, like a food curiosity. And then when there's like a just I don't know, like a inquisitive uh, curiosity. So I yeah, retakes are takes same thing with monitors too, like I don't know. I have no experience with monitors, but the few I have seen, the way they do that twitchy head thing like birds do, don't trust them either. I go, the way that thing looks at my hand or feet, I go, there ain't no way. Because it looks like it's just looking to aim and then just plop its mouth right under whatever it is it's looking at. And I go, mm-hmm. no, I'm not doing that either. I go, and that's why I just like some of these... Some of these people want to get like these black dragons or these water monitors or lace monitors. And That's because they, they see that shit and they don't realize these people are putting hours upon hours training a day with yeah. each animal. Otherwise, they're going to get jacked up or they don't see like they joke about it, about the scars and everything on their arms and their hands and everywhere, essentially because of their nails. But you- they're like, oh, it'll be OK. It'll be OK. Did you, uh, did you see that video, uh, that video of that carpet python bite that the, uh, the wildlife relocator did? Did you see that? That was, a, that was an eight-foot snake that cut, o- cut open his artery in his wrist just because it bit 
and the snake not being able to rotate the guy rotated its head along with those teeth and slit his forearm oh that guy got lucky he didn't bleed to death from a carpet python do you know how many species that just opened up the gate for that could do that to you boa constrictors your super door free ticks all most pretty most morelia uh scrub pythons obviously and just all these species that can do this to you and it's like now that made me wonder if I had, if I got to the point where I might need someone that's part time, do you let them take? Because I, me or you might know, but will they know? Like how that animal is? That's the that secondary. Animal? Yeah, that's yeah, that's what that, I'm saying. Like those animals aren't me. right for anybody. Half yeah. of the animals that any of us try to keep aren't right for anybody. And if it's something that could require a second person, you you have to suck it up as the owner of that animal as bad as that sounds like yes you want to pass the information on but i don't think that helper should ever be the one handling yeah, you should be the one handling and they should be the rescue only if needed and yeah. you're passing the information on because they're not going to react the same way you do yeah so i mean in a way though i can almost see i don't think it's a total excuse but I can almost see why some people might be nervous getting into certain those certain species for that reason. But I, like I said, that was kind of one of those. I think that was a, maybe not a one in a million, but that was I could tell you in all the years I've kept snakes and I've never seen anything like that. But at least not with a, a carpet python. I've seen right. it with retic, like big retics that were where they like you know, press their nose and rub it and there's. Well, re, big retics being able to cut up, cut open your arm yeah. or leg or something. But I've never. Would never have thought a carpet python. Like I thought that guy was full of shit when I first saw it. I was like, "There's no way." Maybe a king horn eye did that or something. A big, the huge scrub python in Australia. But there ain't no way a car. And then I saw it and I go, "Yep, sure as shit, it was a carpet python." Hmm. But like I said, that was one of those. I think it was a one in a million. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's something like Dave having all those boa constrictors he has. I don't think it's necessarily something that you need to worry about, but. You know, it's just it's in the back of your head like yeah. that could happen. Well, but you know. we take it for granted too that like these as much as we're around these animals, these aren't domesticated animals. They're still Yeah. yeah. And I don't think wild all, animals to the core. Like I don't think they ever is. will be domesticated. Like uh, we they there might be a type of domestication where they're just easier to breed. Like people just, I don't, domestication isn't just a hard, fast rule like a dog or right. something. It's it's very species dependent. Like we were talking about earlier with cats. Cats are not a, they're a solitary animal. They don't really depend on us like a, a pack animal would, you right. know, like, or, uh, or a herd animal, nothing like that. But like a snake, a snake's never going to look at, they might look at us like just feel, it's weird saying comfortable, but more chill around it. Well, clearly chill because I think ball I pythons. Think yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Ball pythons. Um, I don't know if you ever watched that Dave and Tracy Barker uh, ball python video they had back in 2001. They had this video of the original uh, burgundy albino, the ultra male, and they had it was all balled up, and this thing was straight out of the wild as an adult. And this thing stayed in a ball. Like, this thing did not move with all these ball pythons, these other cats are bred ones, all over it. Did not move from that ball. So you can see that kind of domestication. 
but I don't, it's not going to be like uh, your snake's going to come to you or be able to, you know, live in like North American weather or something like not, not that kind of domestication evolution. Like the way we've, the way we've looked at it now, it's more of like a scent base and how defensive is this animal now? Yeah. Cause like, you could tell the ones that I've had for a long time versus the ones that I've just brought in. And they they don't necessarily ball up. Even even the ones that aren't ball pythons, they're all fairly comfortable. But you could tell the ones that I've had for a long time, they're used to my scent. When I come in the room and they could smell me, they know a couple of things are going on. So you could see the little noses freaking poking at the tubs and showing that they're hungry or like just trying to figure out what's going on because I'm always in here for specific reasons, right? Like I don't overly, like I handle them because I want them to be somewhat calmer when I sell them. But outside of that, it's not, okay, I'm, that's going to sound bad. I'm not divulging all this time to my snakes because I have kids, I have dogs, I have a wife that I have to (laughs) appease. Like I have a lot of things in life, right? But I I don't truly think, but I like, I don't, the whole ball python or no snakes in general, like they're going to, they might be okay with you messing with them, but I don't think they, it's like ball pythons. You can never touch a ball, like a captive ball python and it'll grow up to be fine. I've yet outside of during the breeding season, when a female's going through a feeding or a male too, but when a female's going through that feed cycle where they're vigorously feeding, that's the only time I've noticed where, yeah, you might take a bite. But generally speaking, I shoot ball pythons. I, I, I will say I've got one of my worst bites from a ball python as far as, well, most painful bite. I remember years ago, Ben and Ben and his um, wife at the time went to coast, where'd they go? Somewhere down Costa Rica? I don't know. Mexico? I don't remember. They went, they went out, they went somewhere. So they needed somewhere to take care of their collection. And um, I went out there to clean, just kind of to clean a little bit and just make sure all the tubs are closed. Nothing's going to escape. Because Ben would, every once in a while, Ben would have a scenario where one snake would escape and release eight other ones. A bunch of them. Yeah. yeah, or whatever. But I, I went there to clean a little bit. Well, he had this, this there was a ball pine I was cleaning and you'd, you'd hold it while you spot clean its tub. Well, while I was holding it, like the snake was striking, you know, while I opened a tub, like it was trying to get something. But usually once you hand, like grab them, it diffuses that food response with ball right. pythons anyways. Well, not this ball python. This ball python was still out to get something. So it latched onto the back of my hand where all these veins are and just bit down right on there. And boy, I could not get that snake off like that because it was, it's just so, it, the skin's so soft. It was, I just, you couldn't like push up against it and I, I just couldn't get the sucker off and i was like it was on there for like 10 or 15 minutes and that hurt so bad mm. i was talk about this is gonna sound bad but i was almost like man i'm gonna take you out if you don't get off my hand like i'm gonna just uh, you know and then end it right now it's one of those rea- yeah it's one of those reaction moments like i was saying with um, grumpy like not that i could have done anything to it but it was it was one of those it was like it's my life or yours at this point, bro. Like, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was well, no, it, it was painful. It's a reaction thing, right? Like, it sucks to say with animals, but it's a reaction thing. Um, 
with us we we've been going at it we went on so many rants and i told you through man, it i can bro. go <laughs> um let's talk about your projects this year and like some of the stuff you're doing like obviously we talked about the white lips which i freaking i love i'm super excited to get into um this big beautiful girl right here and it's how how do you how do you keep so many different species and stay focused on the breeding habits like i know you said it's not very different based on pythons but like honestly i, I feel like i feel like there has to be maybe maybe you're right like you were saying earlier maybe i'm putting too much emphasis on it and it's not that difficult but i just i don't know it's the newbie it's, in me man i, I feel like you have to have a change so uh, there's a few there's a few things so cycle feeding one of the biggest things and the when it comes to breeding every species and i'm talking ev even humans we're pretty domesticated but if we were more you know people will not people but animals will breed depending on the seasons and it's right. not cold it's not hot well, sometimes hot. Hot can really put a damper on things. That but, cold season's a killer for but, me. I'm just saying. My kids were oh, pretty much all born in the spring. So, man, you, you're Once it a starts man. getting I'm, cold, I know. It's oh, cuddle I'm, time, I'm, man. It's cuddle time when it's cold. I'm a big guy, so that's when <laughs> that's when uh that's when it's the safest for me. But anyways, like most of these animals food cycling is a huge thing. And the problem is and you can do this with ball pythons. You know, I hate there's a here's a reality check. You can seasonally breed ball pythons. People yeah. think, oh, they don't breed seasonally. Well, how do you feed them? Oh, weekly, bi weekly. That's not cycle feeding. When I mean cycle feeding, I mean you may not feed them for four months. Like I'm talking like you don't feed them till they show you they're hungry. Like with a ball right. python, obviously other species will always be hungry, but you kind of have to set that boundaries. So there was a paper, not a paper, it was a Daniel Natouche. He's a biologist. He studies a lot of the Indonesian Indonesian uh, pythons. Like he did the paper on the chondros when he separated the chondros out. And um, they were asking, this was on NPR, and they were asking him about uh, – you know, follicle growth and pythons. Well, he, he didn't know a lot about the breeding aspect of it because that's not his forte. It's more of just like the either, well, a bunch of other things other than breeding. But he looked, he dissected a bunch of different snakes, a bunch of different pythons, like reticulated pythons, green trees, uh, uh, I think berms and stuff too. It's not all kinds of species and thousands of them. And the one common denominator he found in a lot of them, all of them, was they all had follicles year round. They had, they don't, you know, a lot of people think they just shrivel up and go away. No, they're always there, but there's just something that needs to trigger them to grow. There's something that stimulates the So growth, right? food can be a big, big thing for a lot of these animals. A lot of these animals, they, in the wild, they'll go through seasonal fasts where they may hardly get anything. And then whenever it's breeding season for other animals, a lot of times, all right, that or rainy season, 
you know, more animals either come out or it's a lot of other animals are procreating. So, right. and then that's when they're going to eat the most. So a ball python, like, well, bringing it back to ball pythons, ball pythons can be seasonal or seasonally bred. The only thing is, and this is the caveat, and I've noticed this with mine, I didn't do seasonal feeding in the beginning. So a lot of my older adults are harder to get on a routine compared to babies because I'll seasonally feed from the time they're established, which could be less than a year old, maybe six months. And I'll seasonally feed them all the way up to adulthood. Right. And that blows people's mind. Cause you're like, you don't feed babies for months. I go, yeah. Cause some babies may not get to eat all that often, you know? And I tell you what, like when they do get to eat, they grow and they eat like, like I usually never have a problem getting a lot of them started. But the problem is, and this is where I think people need to watch out. If I tell them don't feed them for months, but you got to watch them too. Cause certain, it's not a hard, fast to watch that body weight. Yeah. Some of the species may not take it that well. And some of them might lose weight a little quick, but you got to be able to distinguish what's an unhealthy looking animal and what's an animal that looks fine. And the problem is with Americans, if it's not round, Everything. Then it doesn't look healthy, yeah. you know? So it's like we want to feed, 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 feed. And like I said, weekly, bi-weekly feeding is not seasonally feeding. I'm telling like Vin Russo, Vin Russo, and this is going to blow people's minds, feeds 12 times a year his ball pythons. He'll feed them really big meals, but for a short period of time. And he'll just, and that's what I tend to do. This year I had a real rat shortage, right? I couldn't get my dad breeds a lot of the rodents so he got a he's retiring this year so he had a lot of surgery done so the rats kind of he didn't cycle through a bunch of them, so we like had a rough rough season with rats so i had to prioritize okay how can i feed these snakes and still get them to breed so i was just like well i'm gonna give them one big meal bi-weekly and feed them this for a little while and then not feed them for months because People think that ball pythons, oh, they shouldn't be fed these huge meals. Yeah, if you're going to feed them weekly or biweekly. But if you're only feeding them a handful of times throughout the year, then you can feed them some big rats. I got another, there's a, you know, this is another thing too. People keep talking about these ASFs and stuff. Dude, there's these African pouch rats that they use to smell out like landmines. Mm -hmm. They're a part of the ball pythons food source too. Do you know how big those are? They're bigger than a jumbo rat. Damn. They can, they can, and they eat them. They go in the burrows. They may not eat. They might have trouble. Well, pythons in general cannot gauge. Like, that's why I always laugh when you hear that, like, oh, the, the snake sizing size you up. up. Dude, yeah. snakes will eat whatever. Like, snakes will, they will try. They don't care what it is. They'll eat it. If it's bigger than them, the same size as them, they may not be able to do it or they die from it. Because if a snake eats something its own size, that's just way too much overload for the heart and the organs and all that. So they, it's, it's like a heart attack. They essentially, it's what it's doing. It's just fucking everything just fails. So, or a stroke, it's kind of, or a stroke or a heart attack, something like that. But if you, because I, I would say there was a, um, there was a guy in one of the Papuan Python, uh, facebook groups who had a uh, a male and a female and those are known snake eaters and mm -hmm. they were 
they were roughly the same size. And this is why I'm one of those guys, like, I will keep my males small. Like, if I showed you some of my breeding ball pythons, you would be shocked to hear how old they are and how small they are. Like, I just keep... Are you talking about, like, the five to 700 gram range? Or what are we talking about when you say small? Like, three to 400 at an adult size. Like, so I had a pair of double... I had a pair of a... um, double head candy puzzles and obviously the males had to wait for the females and i i maintenance fed the sh- i it's basically whenever i remembered to feed them i would feed them so that's the only time they would eat and people think you they may not get monstrous but they it's not going to stun them to where they can't get big trust me if you fed the shit out of them they could get just as big as they would have if you didn't mm-hmm. but I just slow down because there's just no reason in most cases to have a male really, really big. The only caveat to that is if you are a guy with an ultrasound and you're breeding it to like 10 to 15 or 20 females, then that's a 200 or 300 or 300 to 400 gram snake is going to have a real rough time doing that and live essentially. Even like a five or six, 700 gram male will have trouble. That's when you're going to want something a little bit bigger, but like smaller males, if they're just getting, you know, like usually my first year males are probably around that 400 gram mark, roughly. And three, like I said, high threes, mid fours, sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller. It's essentially whatever I have in rat wise to feed them. So, and I don't pay attention to the weights either. So I, I could be either low balling. You could be low balling that. Yeah. So they might be, but they're, I mean, they're small. Like, I mean, people wouldn't believe me if I told them that if I held it in my hand, how, you know, but like, it's, it, I don't know. If you get them big too, this is another thing is if you get they're them big, lazy. they're not just lazy, but you have to put them in a bigger enclosure. Like, or you don't have to, but then you got an animal that's just jammed into a tiny tub. Right. But if it's smaller, well, it has a whole lot more room. You know, it's just why, why waste the space on a huge male? Now, if you buy the male and he's huge, that's one thing. And like I said, if you plan on breeding it to a gazillion females, then yes, why it would be beneficial to have a bigger male? Because a small male, I really don't think it'd be able to handle. I remember Ben would have 700 gram males, maybe 800, and they would go through a ton of females, and they sometimes he would have them crash, you know. And sometimes they wouldn't; they just they end up dying because it was just too much work overload. So. Yeah, it just depends. I think like in- that's a happy medium that we have to find as breeders too, though. It's like yeah, it's not just based on weight. It's just it's knowing when to pull that male. I I could tell you, man. I don't I don't pay attention to weight at all anymore. It was shit anything ball pythons. That's another thing too. You ball python people get into other species. You'll get laughed at if you ask about a weight. Nobody gives a shit about a weight. It's it's. Age rules over weight most of the time, you know, if, if you're breeding stuff too young, you could possibly run into longevity issues, but in some cases, but like, if you're talking like weight, I mean, weight can mean, I mean, people would be shocked to see how small some of the, my two uh, breeder male white lips are. They're this, they're, they're probably about the size of my spotted pythons. 
Like they're really not that big. Mm. <laughs> they're fucking, they are pretty tiny animals. Like, honestly, it's almost like just, a colubrid size for you, huh? Oh, it, it's yeah, I probably somewhere in there. But I mean, if let's just say if the male female decided to eat the male, I would never notice other than him just not being in there. There wouldn't be any lump. And to be honest, like, this sounds bad. I would rather have the female eat the male than the female eat the male that's the same size, regurgitate it, and die. And now I'm out two different animals than just the one, personally. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, White lips depends are... On, eh, they, don't, they don't eat each other, but they... they. Ryan always said they didn't... He never experienced any kind of aggression with each other. I, for the most part, didn't. There was only one female I had who would, like, if if you went into the tub while the two were together and she was real antsy, she would wrap the male just out of, I don't know, just being startled by him or movement. And I've had that happen before. But generally speaking, I don't. It's not usually that, so that bad. That needs to be, a, like, a witness first interaction. Or, um, yeah, what's it called? Meat. Oh, God. You know what I'm trying to say. It starts with an M. I don't know what it's called. It's like when a divorced couple is spending time with their child. Mediated. Boom. Oh. Mediated interaction. That's bad. That's bad that that's where I went for that. Sorry, people. Dark okay. minds over here, but um, talk about let's talk about going into this because Morelia can some of them can get fairly large, but they start out like super tiny, like worms. Oh, what's, yeah. what's kind of your interaction with breeding these, and how how have you had to set up differently? Because like most people that I know they they remain within like they'll have a housing for the adults right but they'll maintain like their ball python setup and some of them use like the six courts and stuff like this where there's enough of a gap that you could actually get a baby out of it or if you make breather holes in it it's they're gonna sneak through the breather holes so you got to think about how you're gonna maintain that gap i know some people that use colubrid racks but um how how have you changed the way you do things in order to breed stuff that has that such a big variance in size? As far as like housing them or yeah, or, or and so like housing from baby to, to adulthood, and then like what's something or like what what's been your focus with growing those up? Because Morelia. Seems like it's a little bit longer, almost like a retic where you're looking at like that four to five year before you're really breeding with some of the species as well, from what I've found. They, some species are, but I mean, even, like I said, I've, I've experienced it in a few days, like ball pythons. I have ball pythons that'll breed two years old and I'll have some that'll breed six years old. Like it just, it, it depends, it's very species dependent. Like, uh, like the bread lot you have there, they mm-hmm. tend to be an animal that tends to want, need to be older, from my experience. But I've had them, I try to cool them down and do the whole cooling process with them because they come from part of Australia where they 
experience the wide temperature ranges you know similar to similar to like diamond pythons and stuff but not maybe not quite as extreme but they can handle they can handle some pretty crazy temperature swings but i as far as keeping them i don't really so as of now i keep them all in boa tubs like the big ars boa tubs with the but i'm trying to change that in the caging because i i kind of feel guilty keeping them where they can't perch even though they right i don't think at least the carpet pythons i don't think most of them care but i i don't other than the darwins i can tell the darwins tend to be a lot more hanging up on like the lay box tub and stuff so i plan on i i think later on this year in the next year i'm getting a building put up it's a decent sized building like 2000 square feet and i plan on having multiple different rooms and the, there's going to be a ball python room a carpet room and a few other rooms well the carpet room is going to well carpet room is going to be a lot of the miscellaneous stuff right but it's going to have a lot of the carpets the all bulk of the carpets in there and i plan on putting a wall of cages for at least the females like i said i keep my males so small that tubs aren't that bad to me they don't they're not too bad of a thing because they have plenty of room in a lot of them especially if you add those like uh 3d perches and stuff so you add more mm -hmm. elevation and different you know for expand on the floor play uh, uh space essentially but the females i'm going to try to move them the bulk of them into enclosures try to yeah. and we'll see hopefully it doesn't screw things up but some of them like darwin's i have a i cannot my Darwins are plenty old enough to breed, but man, they have like no interest in each other. They just stare at each other and that's about all I can get with them. But a lot of the other ones, they do, they do, they do fine in tubs. And like I said, Nick Mutton, he's the king of the carpets and he breeds a lot of his in tubs too. And they just, they don't seem to have a problem as far as being in, in tubs. But I generally speaking, if you're going to like, I have a, I I have a decent number of carpets, not nothing like Nick, obviously, but I have a decent number and I can, I think I can convert a lot of them into cages. And I just kind of the route I want to go with a lot of them. I don't, I just think it's more of a, a guilt thing with them. And not to mention, I kind of want to see them a little bit too, like hanging out on perches because they, they, they are just such a great display animal when it comes to perching. Like they're not afraid of anything. So they'll hang out and, sit on a perch more i think more impressively than a chondro will but that's surely because of size you know carpets beans is so much bigger they just look more impressive on a on a branch than a chondro does generally speaking and if they want to some but sometimes they will hide but yeah i don't keep i and then i start them out in smaller tubs and ball well than my ball python or ball python tubs i use like uh, i use the v18 tubs not okay. v18s the the 15s the little shorter ones a little short i use the freedom breeder i don't even know what the freedom breeder versions of them are called but i um the uh, fb5s was fives, it yeah. something FB5. yeah i use i like them for yeah i know you can get different colors in the vision tubs but i kind of like that they're already pre-hold punch and i just buy the freedom breeder solid colored ones because that's another thing too is I think with a lot of the smaller neonates, when they're real small like that, they kind of 
it's more they're it's not as much security as more like a attention span like with the white lips i've heard too they can have attention span issues like with babies like kill something and then leave it because they saw something else move and forget to go back to eat it so that's kind of why with certain species i kind of would keep the uh darker tubs for depending or you can keep them all in dark tubs it really doesn't probably even with ball pythons it doesn't that was one of the things well that's why i have gray like i i have the clears on this because that's what it came with and i i love the sea serpents i'm not gonna shit on it but i i prefer the grays that you can't see and then when i bought the ars rack my wife was like well i want the clear tubs like i don't want clear tubs and she's like what do you mean i want to be able to watch them i was like no i want to throw the rat in there and i want them to eat and i want them to be left alone and it it was a it was an argument for a little bit because you know you're you're dropping that kind of money on something she's like well i want to be able to see the snakes it's like well open the tub (laughs) yeah right (laughs) oh man yeah no i I completely get it they're they're not the uh most cued in animals yeah i well well, ball pythons i keep ball pythons in um the vision tubs because they don't have the freedom because i do i you know uh, like when it comes to rack system even caging i i am a diehard animal plastic guy and i know most people don't like animal plastics for obvious reasons but dude i am i am like loyal to a default like unless you just take my money i'll wait however Within re, well, I guess reason could be different to different people, but I I can wait a while for some caging or racks, or at least I right. most of the time I can, and it's just one of those like once I'm set with someone. There's like an old quote from um, Ralph Davis I always like is, uh, you know, I like buying stuff from people to help me sleep better at night, and that's that's kind of one of those. Not saying I wouldn't with anyone else, but. I'm like I said, just loyal. I just like sticking with when I get that well, tested, whatever yeah. brand. I just I like it. I you know just want to stick with. It. I do have ARS racks though, because I mean certain species I think just in my opinion do a little bit better in tubs. Personally, at least as far as like not having like the white lips. I think white lips mm-hmm. are just one that you know if they're not having to bang their. The only problem I found with the ARS tubs. At least when you have to get the bigger tubs, they don't have that. I don't. I don't know if they do now because I've had the rack I have now for a while, but it's uh, it didn't have ventilation choices, so that they they would have terrible sheds in those big boa tubs, and uh, so I had to find uh, I had to find something to cover the top with because the it it just released too much humidity so i had to get some kind of plastic to lay over it to keep uh the moisture and humidity in in them better so it's funny well it's not funny but i think it's funny you say that because that was one of the things like i could have swore i had selected when i bought this um a different ventilation and then i went back on the website and was looking at okay well let's look through the options just in case i want to add a couple more levels like i don't see anything for ventilation and maybe it was just something that i overskipped i'm not saying ars doesn't provide it but it may have been i thought they I did overskipped. i thought they did now but i don't i don't i don't know i don't I'm, really i'm pretty sure they do on the hybrid originals or i'm not sure if they do on the hybrids because oh, i have a hybrid okay, okay. 
maybe that's what it is but like i know when i switch to this i'm having to go back now and i'm flipping all the ventilation so it's over the heat okay because it was holding too much humidity and it was actually getting to where water was rolling down the sides just with a water dish so it, it was a little weird for me and it's just it's been play and go which i mean that's the way all your equipment's going to be like i it was almost to the point where i was about to take a drill to it and just like start <laughs> randomly drilling in each oh, spot. God. like no oh man <laughs> yeah man yeah you got to do what you got to do for the animals like I oh was, yeah i was getting um I was getting some ri issues with my gravid females because there was too much humidity in their tubs um, so I was just like, uh, is yeah, my problem, my problem was hu uh, keeping humidity, like with the white lips, I had the female that laid eggs too. This is going to sound bad, but she would, while she was going through the process of, you know, building follicles, I noticed she would shed and she had eye caps on and boy, having to manhandle an adult female white lip to get those suckers off is such a pain in the ass. So what I did was, this is why I had the ventilation was such a problem, too much of it, and I had the thing on it. Well, I was like, not going to lie, I was like, I'm just going to coast this and see if maybe she'll rub them off or she'll have another shed and pop them off. Well, she ended up not getting them off that second time, but at that point, she already had her ovu the ovulation, their uh, prelay shed, I mean, so... And I was like, shit, if she has eggs, I really don't want to mess with her. Cause I'm a, right. cause you're going to, you're not just going to, a white lip, you got to hold on to like restrain with some strength. And sh you know how they get when you do that, you start wrapping you up and stuff. And then you got to fiddle with their face. I go, man, I just don't want to do that if she has eggs. And I go, man, I'm going to have to let this coast a little while. And then once she lays, take her off and then, you know, then mess with it. So I had to wait, I had to wait a while and I go, it's like, this is such a pain in the ass. So that's why I had to jerry rig those wraps to make them work. At least, at least for that, you know, but that's a, that's really the only problem I have is animals that need more moisture like that. They tend to, uh, ARS racks and I guess freedom breeder would work if you have, um, the better ventilation or the less ventilation on the, uh, tops. But, um, yeah, ventilation is really the only thing maybe different with species depending on the species but i think that has more to do with heat more than anything right like if you get if you're gonna run if you're gonna run a hot spot you're gonna run into that i the bad shed problems if you can do an ambient i've heard that that can fix a lot of that shed problems because we are giving the animals more heat than they actually need to function like they don't need an eight. This goes for all species too. They don't, right. maybe Antresia might be a little different. I heard they tend to like hotter hot spots, but generally speaking, like even ball pythons, like I got ball pythons that from the top rack could be 88 and the bottom one could be, uh, what is it? Uh, 85, 84. And they tend to be okay. Right. So, I personally never had a problem with them. Is there so, is there any difference with an incubation besides just like incubation times, or do you have to set up like different incubators based off of the species? Or no, nah, they all incubate pretty similar to each other. I like I talked to Ryan. Ryan goes, I don't really treat. I mean, maybe you want to keep 
if you want to keep one a certain species on the bottom and more like i don't know what was it chondros or what did he tell me i'm drawing a blank it was like chondros carpets and maybe something else you keep towards the bottom and your balls um anteresia and a lot of other species more up top i never had a problem i just kind of throw them all in there and just never really had an issue with it you know as far as temperature ranges go or anything that's like i said i think people just put way too much thought into different species now if you're doing like a water monitor in a ball python it might be a little different because that's they're not you know out of outside of being you know uh reptile they you know there's not much similarities between the two but if you're doing like pythons where they evolved from essentially a common ancestor relatively recent too not well kind of recent compared to you know squamates being the lizards and snakes but it's just you can it's crazy you know and then being equatorial too you know them being towards you know being in that line where they can handle a lot of very similar temperatures as far as all that's concerned so yeah i um that's why i think just people put too much thought in a lot of that stuff it's just you know don't overcomplicate it on yourself if you overcomplicate it on yourself you're just gonna that's when you start screwing things up when you start thinking too much about it and messing with them too much. And, you know, another thing Nick and uh, Ryan taught me is consistency. Be consistent. It doesn't, it really doesn't, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but as long as you're consistent with those ways, that's, that'd be your best way to make something happen, you know, or be having a better chance of it happening. So when you decided to do something based off of however you decided to just stick with it and find a way to make it work. So what you're saying or for the most part, you can do like, so I'll tell you what, I did something a little different. So I'm, so this sounds bad, but I did something, I did do something a little different and this had to do with the way the, the two guys I mentioned a lot is nick and ryan they do things kind of differently well i originally i would did a lot of business with nick and i talked to nick first so i would listen to nick you know tell me the way he bred because he not quite as many species as ryan but still a shitload of different species so he has some valid points so i would ask him so how do you go about so i'd say like cycle feeding how did you do this how do you do your cycle feeding well I would sparsely feed throughout summer, feed heavy through fall, and then not feed at all during winter, and then pick food back up again in spring. And I was like, okay. And sounds like majority of the Morelia complex does that, and that seems to work very well with a lot of species. Well, I asked Ryan, because Ryan – I'm not going to lie. He's, he's the king of the hill when it comes to pythons, when it comes like there's nobody doing what he's doing and he's proven it over and over again. He has what it takes to breed pretty much seems like any kind of Python. So, Oh, Ryan young. Yeah. He, um, he, um, he did it differently. He told me I don't feed at all during summer feed heavy and fall and still feed throughout winter 
And I go, and then that's kind of one of those situations where who's, who's like right, I said, I'm not taking, I, well, it? it's almost like, who do you, who, which one do you want to try? And it kind of was like, well, nothing against Nick, but Ryan's just killing it. So clearly there's something he's doing. And there's, so, and then there's a bunch of factors that go into that, right? So Nick uses hot spots. Ryan does ambient temperatures. When you do ambient temperatures, you cannot feed that big of meals. Right. You got to feed, you can feed more often, but you feed smaller meals. So you might feed every four or five days or something like that, or, you know, a, a smaller meal than you would, uh, you know, if you had a hot spot. Like me, I do hot spots because Ryan has a more controlled room that he can do an ambient temperature and it'd be a little better consistent than my room is. So I kind of have to do the hot spot mentality, do use a hot spot, right. you know, it may not bump it up to anything too crazy, but just to give enough, cause that room will get kind of cold. Cause I do have, you know, some of the carpets can take a little bit harder temperature swings for the most part. So in that, and when that happens is I try to feed smaller meals than during winter, because if I'm feeding big meals, which is what I do in the fall, to try to bulk them up because that's another thing too is when you hear about the cycle feeding look at the breeders who do it and look at the condition of their animals when they do it like if you look at your animal and you're saying all right i'm doing it the way they're doing it but my snake still looks thin well then it may i mean it could breed i've had snakes that look a little bit on the thinner side still breed they just may not lay that big of a clutch right but someone like uh like Nick, Nick would post a lot of his adult female breeder carpets. He's going to breed and you look at them and you go, they look kind of thick. Like they, they're thick and they go, how a lot of people would go, then how do you do it with giving them months off and not feeding them? Well, it's that's when that, that's when that's, well, yeah. If you, if you feed them up in like increments during a segment of the year, you, they, they hold, they tend to, almost like a better shape to them when they're not being fed all the time. And when I mean all the time, I mean weekly and bi-weekly feeding. It's like, I feel like I got to repeat myself with that because some people, uh, they don't, I don't know. They think, I don't know. I had to put my other headphone in and died. Oh, I got you. We died. Lost my train of thought. Yeah. And yeah, it's people. Yeah, man, it's like what I talked to Dave about because we talked about the cyclic feeding or like doing a fasting period. And I I asked him what he did and then I told him what I do. So like over here, all the females that I plan on breeding, I'm not going to lie. I do. I do a weekly feeding. I do a small weekly feeding every week because that's what my mentor said. Okay, it's hard. It's hard to not weekly. But then the month and a half before i decide to start creating that breeding cycle for them they don't get anything for a month and a half and then they start on on small feedings again and then they might get one or two per week of small feedings but i i keep the animals small either way now um initially when i first started and i didn't i didn't really have luck my first year like i i only paired a couple but i didn't get any clutches so now i don't even really consider it my first year but because I didn't produce anything, but whatever. The first time I paired, I went from the 
fasting period to immediately mediums. And I think it was too much of a shock on their bodies. They weren't really taking in the way they needed to. Um, so I started with smalls and I just stick with smalls. Um, but that's just, that's my thought. And based off of what I've seen, it's been effective for me. Like I said, it's, yep. it doesn't mean it's going to be effective for everyone, but that's just my mentality. You'll learn to adapt in certain situations. Like this year when I was telling you, I had such a rat shortage. So with this rat shortage, I just, I couldn't feed nearly as much as I usually would. So I had to start, I really had to like think, all right, when can, when should I start feeding some of these females? Cause I had a bunch of first time females ball Python wise. Cause the ball pythons are the only things that I feed live too. I'll pretty much everything else I have species wise will eat frozen thawed. But I would let the female tell me when she was hungry, that's when I would feed her. And that's when I would feed her those giant rats, like those big rats that I wouldn't. So I could coast too. I would feed her those meals and do when you feed them big meals, do not feed them like back to back. Like don't, don't feed them the following week. Let them digest that rat for at least two weeks at least because if I, and I know Warren Booth's have been on a bunch of podcasts, he's gone over it. He's, you know, if you feed them everything, you know, their heart doubles in size, their organs grow, their plasma thickens. And I look at it like this. If you, if I follow a lot of these bodybuilders, I don't follow them, but I hear about it because they're still kind of a part of the, the lifting community, I guess you'd right. say. And a lot of them are dying. They're dying super young. And they're dying because they're taking these growth hormones and their organs are like two to three times the size they should be because that's a lot of stress on their body. You know, people like, you know, that could lead me down another topic. Like when people look at me, they think like, God, you're so healthy. I go, I'm big, but you know, my heart works as much as a fat ass that weighs the same. It actually works harder because the muscle and everything. So I'm not, I can do cooler things than the fat ass who sits on the couch, but it's still not. And I know it's not healthy, but that's just, it's an addiction just like the reptiles, you know, getting stronger. So it's one of those, it's the same thing that I think that's why people like who breed ball pythons and they feed them all the time. And every once in a while you hear about those like animals that ate something regurged and died. I think they just heart attack. I think it just, if you consistently keep them elevated like that with no breaks, I think that's what's killing them. I think it's just dying from a heart. Just like these bodybuilders, you're taking all these growth hormones. Your body can only handle it so much before you're done. You know, you just, you end the, you know, burn yourself out that too quick. So So, someone had an interesting subject and I was actually going to say it. So I'm glad they kind of said it. But um, what's your thought on uh not feeding them again until they poop and if they leave a large black stool does that mean that you're overfeeding them i don't think so much i think it's the size of the poop more than anything like if they're you can tell when they're utilizing a food source better by the size of their poop it's like same thing with i noticed it was me yeah like when i went on this diet when I, yo, dude, when I was, I was up to 280 at one point and I wasn't getting any stronger. And I was like, I'm not going to keep all this weight on if I'm not going to get stronger. So I decided to cut weight and I cut weight and 
I util- let's just put it, I utilize the food better because it's a cleaner diet, but my body's utilizing the food better compared right. to, you know, same thing with the reptiles. If they're taking these huge shits, then they're probably it's just going in one hole and out the other. It's not getting everything it should be getting out of it. So that's why you're not absorbing it. And then you're just putting undue stress on them because yeah. you're just going to do the same thing next week and they're not going to digest yeah. anything. Luckily, ball pythons, for the most part, most of the time, are pretty good about just stopping when they're hitting that capacity. But stuff like retics, berms, and boas, good Lord, the boa community is horrible with obesity. Dude, I've seen boa constricted tails that look like one of those little kid ring toys where it's just a different level rings on that... um, You know what I'm talking about? I don't know what it's called. The little place called stack. Yeah, Yeah. different stacks. That's what the the vertebrae in their tail look like. I go, how does that look healthy? And the same thing with retics. When their back end of their ass looks like a Nicki Minaj video, how does that look normal? I go, that looks terrible. Because, bro, my anaconda don't want none. Yeah, and everyone knows who I'm talking about when I say that, too. There's There's a very bad guy, or not bad guy, well... I guess some people he's bad, but a guy who's bad about doing that to his retics. And it's like, I used to have this joke. People used to bitch about the chondro community, you know, Oh, chondros, you know, feeding, getting them to a thousand or 1500 grams is crazy. And I, it, it is crazy, especially an animal that should be the size of anteresia. But I think I was always the joke where like, dude, retic breeders say you shouldn't even bother breeding till it's at least the size of you. If you ain't the size of the owner, then why are you trying to breed it? I don't know. I just the <laughs> retic community and the the conjure community in the boa community. I can't forget the boa community. There's they're 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 probably the worst. I'm just not into that community as much as the other two, or at least follow it. But yeah, boa people are terrible. And they'll eat too. That's the problem. Like I said, that's the problem with the the one it's not a uh hopefully it wouldn't become a problem, but I tell people in the want to get other species just do not feed them like you do your ball pythons if you do that you well first of all a lot of these species are triggered by cycle feeding so if you don't give them like i said every week or bi-weekly is not a cycle feed that's just a that's a that's a schedule still that's and you're not going to trigger any kind of follicular development from doing that i mean it's well, I'm going to say you're not going to. I know some people that do feed, but chances are it's going to be a lot more sporadic or you just shorten that animal's life. Like it might only breed 10 years, 15 if you're lucky, compared to like Vin Russo, who does this feeding cycle with his boas, but he'll breed boas that are almost in their 30s, you know, or at least in their 20s. When most people say, I remember years ago where there was a split in the boa community where it was like, you had your breeders who bred their animals so they're five years old and shot shit and died because they fed the shit out of them and just bred them young and fed them till they died. And they just said, oh, well, that's the way it is. And then you had people like the Vin Russo who said, well, why would I want to keep, well, even as a business aspect, why would I want to just have to keep cycling through new animals? You know, if you could just get longevity by waiting a little longer and keeping them healthy, well, why wouldn't you just go that route? You know, compared to the other route where, and I know big breeders who did that, who knew this and still decided to go the five-year lifespan route and said, 
fuck it. It is what it is, you know? And I go, that's a shame, hmm. but I don't know. Let's, let's, uh, let's wind it back in. So I'm going to ask real quick. Um, what are some of the projects that you're willing to divulge that you're super excited about or species that just have you really amped to be breeding this year? And then after that, I'll, uh, I'll ask my last little question for you. Cause we've taken okay. up a decent amount of your time. <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. Yeah. Projects. Uh, dude, there's so many, man. So, so many, uh, species wise hopefully try to knock out other species that I haven't that either didn't go this year or will be up to size next year. Um, I don't know. It'll hopefully be, I'm going to hopefully do try Timor's and to keep trying for them. Um, what else? Rough scales, tons of different carpet stuff. Like, like I said, Darwin albino stuff, ivory jungle stuff, uh, all kinds of locality carpet stuff, hopefully. Um, what else? Oh, man. I feel like there's other species I'm just not thinking of. Uh, hopefully Angolan pythons. Hopefully try them. Um, and there's probably other ones I'm just forgetting, but, you know, try to do – of more species and then the species i have already bred like hopefully get another a different pair of white lips or two different pair of white lips to go hopefully and um as far as ball pythons go that one it's got to be one puzzle I've, oh dude, like i know I've, how you feel about puzzle <laughs> oh dude so i've had to i've had to um i decided when i was really on this mission to build the species collection you just can't do all these ball python more. It's like, you can't, you can't just do, cause I, like I said, after working with Ben, I was in that mindset, have all these variety of morphs and you have a wide variety. Well, now I've changed that to variety of species, but condensing the morphs into just, what do I really like working with? And it was something about the puzzle gene that just, first it was the big, that, quote big investment animal i got into like spent a lot of money on with money i had you know worked forever to get you know that and that's another thing too it's the impatience in this right. fucking community man dude like i made nine ten dollars an hour at my job when I, I think i was 21 and when i bought the puzzle and i i worked I worked six or eight months, didn't just do shit. Yeah. Well, not even pay it off, just to say, because like I wouldn't want to do a payment plan or anything. That's ridiculous. But there was like that, you know, I was like, I, I'm going to save up for this gene because I really want to work with this gene. I really, really like this gene, what it does. And I was like, I'm going to save. I'm not going to go out partying. I'm not going to get the latest and greatest thing for my car whatever the other kids do i never grew up like other kids i didn't care about that kind of stuff you know i was like outside of lifting and even lifting i didn't really i don't spend that kind of crazy money on uh but i was just hard fast saving everything i can for that project and i'd get into that project and there was something fulfilling about having to work that hard and save that long to get a project that I think that snake cost me six grand, you know, and I was just like, 
saved everything, drove down to Daytona, met Sean Bradley, picked that snake up, you know. And I remember at the time, too, is um, I'm one of those dudes, I don't give two shits about a deal, you know. I If I'm going to get something, I'm going to get it. You know, I'm not going to – if the person wants to work a deal without me asking, that's that's your deal. I, I don't care. And if it's too expensive, I'm just not going to buy it. But if I want it, I'm going to save for it, regardless of the price, you know, whatever it is. And I had a buddy at Daytona tell me, he's like, dude, I could have got you a puzzle, a pastel puzzle for 5,500 rather than six grand. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to get to know Sean Bradley. Because Sean was another guy who really kind of inspired me to really, you know, he's the one that got me obviously into the puzzle, like intrigued by it. But he was another guy I just, you know, I just looked up to in the industry. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to build a relationship if I just say, oh, I'm going to go buy a cheaper animal for someone else. I go, no, I'll spend whatever it is. You're going to put me that, on a rant, you know. bro. Yeah. Oh, God. So, go. My friends. I love my friends, like a lot of my friends, man. And we will go through the shows and they're like, well, I think I could get them down a couple hundred. And I was like, one, you don't know. Them. Or if you do, you know them by name, but you don't actually know them, right? Like, do you, if you come up to me right now, like say I'm, say I'm selling animals, and you come up to me, and the first thing you do is try to pull a discount out of me or something like that, and it's not saying that I wouldn't offer it, but yeah, I'm saying yeah. like if that's my first impression of you, I'd be like, all right, this is gonna be a pet person for the rest of their life because they're always looking for that deal, which I understand that's kind of the concept for some people, but damn, like. You you really want to earn someone's respect? Do you really want to build a name for yourself? Like, I understand like saving your dollars, especially in today's times. But at the end of the day, like, if I respect you, I'm gonna pay full freaking price. Oh, like, yeah. If I want to know you, I'm gonna pay full price because I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna pick your brain. And it's not just the animal that I'm paying for at that point. I'm paying for not necessarily your friendship, but your time. Like yeah. you put years into making this animal. You put hours and hours and hours of understanding how to create this animal. And I'm going to take 15 minutes of your time and just pay you and then try to lowball you on your animal. Or and I'm going to build a friendship that's going to last and we're going to blossom throughout the years and just get better. And it, and it comes down to even like, um, getting in this and this goes for both sides species and morphs i've seen it on both sides where if you pay full price and you continue to do it you know what happens especially if that guy's like a higher tier than you he's gonna come to you with something new whether it's a morph or a species that he's working with and be like hey i'm just releasing this and i figure hey i'm gonna let you know before i open it to the public you know i've had that happen a few times where i would got the you know exclusive project species or whatever and you know he they let me into it because i just didn't and i don't i don't usually ask hey what kind of hot weird things do you have it's usually they know me they go well he's not a douchebag or he doesn't jew me down i'm gonna offer it to him and see if he wants it you know before he lets anyone else know you know because yeah that's 
I don't, I never got, I don't, I don't mind doing it to people. And see, you said pet people. I actually notice it's reverse. I notice a lot of breeders yeah. who do it, but mostly breeders, honestly, even more so than pet people. But you know, it, it is what it is. And I don't like judge people if they want a discount. Cause I understand like, nice. but it's, it's one of those, like, I just, me personally, I just, uh, it just don't feel right. You know, to me anyways, to like ask for, you know, because I know how much it goes into you know, a morph or a, a species to establish that animal or to make that animal, you know, right. especially, you know, if it's something you'd even rather, like, you just rather keep back anyways, you know, and then someone wants to Jew you down on a, you know, on your, what you consider your uh, pinnacle animal species or morph or whatever. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's just a respect thing. So. Here it is. You have a new person that comes up to you, says, Will, what's your one piece of advice for me as a brand new keeper, potential breeder? What are you going to tell them? Potential breeder? Oh. Don't chase fads and do what you like, truly, truly like doing. And figure, well, and another thing is too, know where you want to be on the tier right and what i mean by tier is do you want to be the justin or uh garrett where you're the you are the guy in that species do you want to work towards that do you just want to be like um who would be another one like uh with retics uh the people that he's a friend i feel bad saying this but like uh andrew ostervados and uh mm -hmm. like um oh, i can't think of another super dwarf guy but uh eric lee i think is another one those guys like those they're garrett you know garrett recommends them type of breeders but i don't quite put them on the same well they're just not the the face of that in, of that market like justin then you got people like bob vu where they're big guys and a lot of people but they're not the face like justin is they're not like i mean they can be but i think they'd rather be a little bit lower and not have all because when you're on top of that mountain you take all the hits right. you know any, any you take it, all the hate all everything you know like and you got to figure out do you want to be on that what tier do you want to be in? and this goes like i said for anything if you choose to be a morph guy and like i said you could take the route where you just specialize in a one morph and do it really really well and selectively breed or you could be someone who doesn't even worry about so much you pick a morph you like and you just selectively breed it to make the best animals if to the pet trade or if it's a higher end morph and you selectively breed it it for other breeders you know be that guy that those individuals go to and figure out like do where do you want to be at on the tier too you know right. it, this probably means more so with the species more than just a morph per se because the morphs don't really hold unless you're like like i say justin because justin engulfs all of all pythons not just clown and pies i think most people just look at him in general for ball pythons in general but like garrett just with the super door free ticks and stuff you know you you know anyone could be like so like god i did 
like so many people in this industry could be like Ryan Young. I, I, if Ryan was, he wasn't so humble. I told him like, dude, you could be the Python guy. Like you could just be what Garrett and Justin are, but just with pythons in general. But he doesn't. He just doesn't care to do it. And I don't blame him. Like I said, if you're on top of that mountain, you get hit by everybody. And I can understand why. I that's why I've thought about maybe trying to take that route, like Ryan. But I'm like, I may not be that. It's one of those you got to figure out if you're going to be good at doing that kind of stuff, like breeding those right. like 15 or 20 different species in a season. So you kind of just. Figure out where you want to be and follow what you truly, truly like. Because the one other thing I notice in this industry with new ball python people is they're getting it because they want to make a f- quick financial gain. And I say quick because it's going to be quicker than most other species. You know, even outside of pythons, even boas and retics and maybe colubrids are the only other thing you can make it just as fast as breeding wise but maybe just not as financially as well as you can with ball pythons so it's it's one of those just find out what you'd like to do and just figure out what part of the tier if you want to be a breeder what do you want to do or do you not even want to breed like i said even in business you can there's so many different ways you can turn something in this industry into a business but if you're talking about breeding yeah i'd say find out what you want to do and do what you like because i tell oh. you what when you you'll burn yourself out look what look at what sean bradley did and this is nothing sean bradley did it for a long time and he his famous quote was what was it i am a an econ or what was it an economic slave to the ball python in, industry and it's the one thing i really disagreed with sean on i go he's like dude that's just a terrible way to look at it like I told him, I, I talked to him the other day. I go, dude, if you could have been that colubrid guy, you could have been the guy who just everyone talks about when it comes to you're you you got a personality. Some like, some don't like, whatever you chose to do. But you could have been that colubrid guy. But he chose to do the ball python route because he saw. And I can't blame him because when you huh. see fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, especially when he came up that i mean yeah, it's especially it's hard to so say young. no to a species when you came in and you saw guys walking around with 100k cash in their pocket after oh yeah show. yeah like i said i that you know that i can see that how that's appealing to people but nowadays for the most part you know unless you're like working with these multi-recessive traits or something you're it's hard to get that kind of money out of stuff now so i that's why i recommend Find out what you like, research what you 100%. like and what you want to what you want to do in this industry. Like, how do you what kind of impact do you want to leave on the future of this hobby? To me, I like the morphs. I'll, I can't I can. Like I said, I could talk all day about projects. Like we didn't even talk about the puzzle. I remember we didn't even get into we, we, we didn't we get into half of this. This was a rant video, but, y'all. But, We're gonna have to and, have a round two eventually to talk about Will's projects. But but yeah, this. But like I said, you could you could um. It was good because it's all education, bro. Like there's well, so just, much knowledge I, dropped. I just want to. I just want to portray. If there's one thing I could just portray is if people just do what you like doing. It's fine yeah. if you watch Justin. It's fine if you follow their page. I follow their some some of their Patreons because you can derive what they do and come up with your own thing. How can you take what they did and apply it to something else? 
whether it's a species or even a morph, you want to specialize in a morph or whatever it is, how can you, you can learn from that, but just don't follow that formula unless you're, unless you want to be that guy that follows the formula. I'm just someone who just, for the most part, I don't really like following, you know, the trends of the day, you know, that's, and then honestly, with the way that, like the way you can, you know, predict the or look at the market, that's the way it's always been the trend of the day, you know? And like I said, with it can, it gets very, it can be a very dangerous prospect, especially with the ball pythons where you start looking at them as more as objects and animals in some cases. So just remember where these animals come from and don't forget, you know, without those normals, you would never have had those morphs. They would have never existed. So yeah, be more appreciative of where they come from and don't, yeah, just, and like I said, just do what you like. Cause like I said, you can, there's so much stuff out there to do, man. Like there's, I don't, I truly, truly don't believe most of the new people truly believe or understand how much they can do in this industry and take it and do some great things. Like, like phenomenal things. Like I said, I'll blow them one more time. Just look at what Garrett did. You, you could do something similar to that. And he should have been the poster child for people to go, you know, if a super dwarf could be cool, I think I can make anything, cool. anything cool, you know, or at least have more. It, it feeds off of your passion for what yeah. you do. Or at 100%. least, like I said, have more value in the industry, you know, keep that, you know, have that species have more value. Cause any, every, nobody wants something unless it's like a $10,000 snake or a really big ass reptile, you know, like if it's not a Bowen's Python's expensive or a retic level, quote unquote, smart, that's, that's a whole nother topic you can get on, but I'm not going to get on that. So it's I, it just, Look at, and you know what? I'm going to shout out a group of people that really helped me along in this journey. Well, two people. Reptile Radio. They're no longer around. You, you can't, I don't even think you can find their podcast, which is a damn shame. Because they got mm. some real OGs in it. And Morelia Python Radio. And why I think they're important is they highlight, they made a decision not to highlight ball pythons. Why is that? Because everybody else is doing it. We're highlighting species that are always thrown under the rug and people forget about. And I think that is super important. And if you're thinking about getting into stuff, just listen to some, MJ. MJ does it too. MJ is a newer guy to the scene, but you know, he's still, like I said, he still hasn't there. Dude, there are so many weird species that I think would be great pets. And like I said, just, I think he's done a great job with that man, just, with how yeah. he's jumping from species to species. I really like Yeah. Him. I think, like I said, he's another one's doing really great work, but it, it's just go out there and experiment more and figure out, like, like I said, even from a business aspect of it, dude, you can, you can do so much more than just breed the next triple or quad recessives because Ozzy and Justin told you to do it. And that's fine if you want to do it. Cause I'm doing it too. Just not doing it with clowns and pies, you know, and I came out in on the puzzle and right, right around the beginning. So it was kind of, you know, I have that kind of army, I guess you'd say, to be able to do that kind of stuff and the time span to do it. But like I said, you could do all kinds of stuff, man. All I like, I just can't stress it enough. 
all kinds. <laughs> you know, sorry, I feel like I have the. You're good, brother. You're good. Because how the do problem we... is, unless I'm Justin or I'm Ozzy, this is what I think most of the people are going to do. It's just, oh well, <laughs> like doesn't matter to me. I'm not saying anyone's. It's just they don't. They're not going to value what you say unless you're a big YouTuber. Like I said, there's some great books out there with even better people. Well, I won't say better people, but just as knowledgeable and were just as successful at one point in time in books. So read books too. Probably more successful in most cases. Well, I'd say because I guess YouTubers become a fad. Well, and I guess it depends on your success. Do you want to be successful? Like, like successfully financial wise or successful mentally wise or fulfilled, right. you know, mm-hmm. and your experiences in life, you know, cause I, oh God damn it. All right. I'll let you, I'll let you no, close out without No, no, you no sure? More. Cause this is going to be another rant. So another problem, God damn, I'm roasting ball pythons today and I keep mostly ball pythons for the most, as far as the larger side of stuff. But you know what? I've never heard a ball python person say what ever. Dave Kaufman's the only one. I would love to go to Africa and actually see these things in the wild. Dude, every, unless it's too dangerous to go, every other species keeper I know at least try to go see that species in the wild. You know, and it's just, I'm at that point now in life. I love reptile shows. I like hanging out with you guys. But, dude, I want to travel to see more of this shit in the wild. Just I as think, much, just because, just because, right. you know, who's going to have a better perspective on an animal and how it, sh- how it survives and how it looks, you know, or should look than someone who's experienced and seen enough of these in the wild, you know? We're that's just basing everything problem, off bro. of people like, who... We're, we're taking in information, but that's the lost love. Like those, those people that are regular herpers, I give a lot of love to on this podcast because they're out there and they're, they're getting dirty and they're like getting bit by wild animals and dealing with all the crap out there and all the bugs that I, I, I mean, I go herping, but not to the extent that a lot of these people do. And they're taking, they're taking temperature measurements and like humidity measurements and all this shit. And we're like, and dude, Oh, we want to keep this, but let's throw it in the tub. But let or breeders. Yay. Go out there in the wild and fucking figure out how to so, actually keep them, what they dude, move around in, what they search in. Like what's their I, actual environment? You lazy mother. Oh yeah. Fuckers. And the problem and okay, another, and it's just like, I, I've always been the guy when I go on a vacation, if I'm going to go travel, I like, if your life's not endangered a little bit, are you really going to have that good of stories? Probably not. Because I don't really care to hear about how someone sat on the beach and read a novel while he was just staring off, you know, looking occasionally out at the ocean or having a margarita or whatever, or a resort. That's cool. That's pretty. But you're doing what 90% of society does anyways. But if your life's a little bit in danger, you're going to have a more, not just a fulfilled life if you live, but you're going to have a whole lot better stories. I tell you what, the, some of the reptile people I've met, the old timers that were herpers and stuff, and all the stories they had of like nearly getting bit by a rattlesnake, nearly getting bit by some, you know, cobra, or 
drowning or running in the tribes or getting lost out in the desert or all kinds some of, of Tom's stories. favorite stories to tell and people don't realize yeah. it is when he lived with indigenous tribes oh some of his favorite memories Ari too Ari with what, what he's doing with Bolins um dude like the NPR guys dude they found an Owen Pelly python that may not mean shit to anyone who's not into Australian python but that is a I, a lot of people were jealous of that. Australian keepers that can't hardly find that, and, and everyone else outside of Australia. That was that is a story you'll have the rest of your life that no one else, well, rare, hardly anyone could share outside of you and your group of people. You know, right. and it's just hundred percent. I don't know. Just just live a little. I don't know. Try something different. Don't like I said. Don't. Don't go with with popular, you know, like, I don't know. Like I said, All right, well, so many rants. we're going to put you into another rant if I don't cut this off. If they want to hear more of your rants or they want to buy a snake from you, brother, where do we get a hold of you? Oh, man. So it's TJW on Facebook or TJW Exotics on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, have a website. It's a pain in the ass to update because I'm not, you know. Me and technology, it's rough, man. And I I try to update it, but, you know, do what I can. And reptile show-wise, I probably – I don't get to them as often as I – I don't know if should or like would be the right word. But, like, I hit up with most of the Missouri ones, especially out in St. Louis because that's relatively close to me. And Tinley's kind of close enough where it's like, do I want to go or not? I want to like i said i don't know i'm kind of at that point where it's rather travel more than go to reptile shows but i i want to go to shows though too because there's still so many people in the hobby like i've been going to texas for the last few times solely to meet dave and tracy barker and they fucking they're not there and i'm like god i travel all the way out here and i don't see them uh and i've been going to i've been to arlington back in 2015 and haven't ran in i mean i not every time since then but the sporadic times i have gone i you have to see them well covid kind of exonated that before but yeah I get reptile shows i want to go visit and maybe see some of the old timers that still hang around those shows because that's another thing too is people don't realize some of the true old timers that still hang out around these reptile shows that most of these youtubers just walk right by because it by. means nothing to dude if you knew the history of some of those guys you wouldn't have a Justin or Ozzy or, you know, uh, Billy or these big breeders, you know, these, you know, they, they were the foundation of this industry back in the early days. So that's, that's the one reason I probably, I want to, should go to more shows, but yeah, St. Louis shows, you'd see me at them. And I think that's pretty much it for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Well, brother, I appreciate your time tonight. I'm going to go ahead and get this wrapping up and uh if you want to hang out i'll be in the back in a second all right or if you want to go that's cool too whatever you want to do bro yeah i don't know i don't even know how how do you even i don't even know how you exit out of this thing (laughs) oh man all right so much freaking information tonight a lot of rants i think it was good though i think a lot of that stuff is probably things that we needed to hear in the first place as a industry um, US Arc, 
I can't, 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 can't freaking stress this enough. Go give your support to USR. $40 for the basic membership. It's not that big. If you're willing to pay $50 for a normal ball python, which we should appreciate, just ask Will. Uh, you should be able to spend $40 on a membership to protect the rights to keep your animals. There was an alert that just came up today or yesterday, I believe, for North Carolina. So read up on that. Make sure you're putting your support in, reaching out to uh, your representatives to show that you do not want the Lacey Act um, amendments to stay within the America Competes Act before they come to their final decision, which is July 4th. So it is coming quick. Again, anything that you buy under my code with VivTech, all that money goes to us arc at the arlington show so if you want to support them that way absolutely again 100 of the proceeds that i get from you using my code goes to us arc at the arlington show um i want to thank you guys so much next week's going to be awesome as well uh i'm not going to divulge who it's going to be but it's going to be a great show everyone that supported tonight thank you for taking your time love you all we'll see you on the next one